Are you ready to change your life, your mind, and change the way you see your world? Well, this is the Minds Gym Podcast with myself, Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover. And here we go. Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover. This is the Minds Gym Podcast. We're here to share some amazing stories and hopefully assist in changing lives and hopefully change the way you see your world and uh, to create more peace and love on this beautiful planet. I suffered from severe anxiety and depression for several years recently, and I hope by sharing other stories in my story and experiences, it will benefit you. I want to sincerely thank you for your support, and please post comments and likes in the appropriate sections. We rely on your support and feedback to keep the podcast running. Hopefully you uh, you liked our new intro. We got some music we added, a little Turbo Lover um, song from back in the day. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the new intro. We're working on improving the sound and, and everything. Hopefully uh, you're noticing each episode the sound's getting better. So anyways, I'm here with a good buddy of mine, a crazy human being. Uh, his name's Mark Smith. He's a crazy uh, cyclist and a really good buddy. I'm really excited to have him here on the show today. And uh, he's getting uh, ready. He's training for a 531-mile race from Salt Lake City to Las Vegas. It's uh, the end of July. And uh, we're going to kind of discuss some of his uh, training, what he's going through right now, how's his mind, how's his body, uh, where where he's at, and also maybe uh, talk to him about his uh, life a bit and ask him some of our uh, interesting questions that we've put together. So this uh, race that he's training for, it's called Saint to Sinners. It's uh, the end of the July, July 26th, July 27th, and actually the Minds Gym podcast is sponsoring him. And uh, he's going to, uh, sh- like I say, share some information. And he's also got a, a GoFundMe page. We're uh, doing all we can to raise some funds for him. He's got a scholarship program put together that, uh, that he's doing for some high school kids that are less fortunate. So with all the money we raise, he needs about $3,000 to support his race and his crew food, hotels, um, gas, um, you name it. He needs about $3,000, and he's getting close to that goal. But we need to raise another $7,000 at least so that he can give out some scholarships uh, at the end of this year for uh, for his high school uh, where he teaches uh, history, and he's also a football coach. So any support that you guys uh, could uh, be a part of, uh, we would greatly appreciate. So anyways, with that being said, uh, what's up, bro? Hey, it's good to be here today, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing great. Just looking out your window, it's a beautiful sunny day. Yeah. Hopefully it'll warm up. Yeah. 
bright and early in the morning. Uh, first time uh, doing an early podcast, so I'm excited too. So tell me a little bit about you, a little bit about the race, Mark. Uh, where'd you grow up? How old are you? Where do you live? Uh, what are you doing? Just give me a brief little idea of of Mark Smith, the maniac on a bike. <laughs> well, I haven't always been a maniac on a bike. In fact, uh, people say when you're too old to play basketball or football or any other sports, you ride bikes. So that's kind of what got me into that. But I was born in Vernal, Utah, which is a cool place, I guess. I only lived there for a year. Then we moved here to Salt Lake Valley, where I've lived my entire life. And uh, grew up in uh, Sandy for a few years, moved to Holiday, and uh, lived there in probably I was figuring I've lived in holiday probably 35 of my 51 years of life grew up in holiday uh, went to Olympus High School I teach at Olympus High School uh, spent probably 15 years within a stone's throw of the high school so I went to college at Utah State played football at Utah State uh, served a mission, went to Osaka, Japan, and came home, met my wife, Christine, and we got married, and that will be 30 years ago, July 27th. Wow. So that's, that's, that's true. I better give her a shout out here, because that's true dedication that she's going to be supporting us on the uh, bike race on our anniversary, our <laughs> wow. 30th anniversary. So I, I promise I would... Well, I'd make it up to her, so whatever I got to do. <laughs> She's going to spend the day watching her husband go through a little bit of pain. Yeah, yeah, it'll be be a lot of that for sure. So I uh, met her. We both graduated from Utah State University in secondary education, and that's when I got into coaching and teaching and moved back here to... Uh, well, got my first teaching job back here at Granite High School in 1992. And then moved to Roy, where I was the head coach for several years. Had a chance to go back to Castro Valley, where my wife was from. And we're there until 2002, 2003. And then we moved to Florida for a year. I got out of education and thought I would go make some money after I got my master's degree in instructional technology. So... Got to Florida, that was Pensacola, Florida. That was a beautiful place to live, enjoy living there. Uh, only lasted for less than a year, though, when I was, uh, it was a good job. But sometimes, you know, you, you don't realize the grass is greener on the other side of the fence until you, you jump it. So lived in Pensacola. I traveled a lot, had three little kids. And when I wasn't traveling for the government, I was in a cubicle. And you know it's not a good fit for you when you're saying, I hope it's lunch, I hope it's lunch, I hope it's lunch. And you look down at your watch, and it's about 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> so so I, I told my wife, I said, "Hun, my uh, passion is, is teaching and coaching. How about if we move back to Salt Lake? Or back to our, had our house in Smithfield, actually, when I was teaching it, because I was teaching at Skyview at the time. And being the trooper she was, she was fine with that. Ended up back here, a little bit short of Cash Valley, but got the head football coaching job at Olympus High School in 2004. And wasn't planned. We moved into the house next door to the house I actually lived in when I was in high school. 
Wow. At Olympus High School. So that was pretty cool. Uh, we lived there for from 2004 to 2015. And I've got three wonderful children. They're no longer children, though. They're all grown up. Megan, Skyler, and Jacob. And uh, all three of them are adopted. And they're cool with that. We've raised them. That that's a special thing their whole lives. And so uh, they all have unique stories of how they came to be part of our family. But, uh, you know, they're all grown now. Megan's 25. Sky up at finishing her degree and working full-time at Weaver State. And Skyler's 21. He's majoring in musical theater at the University of Utah. He'll be done in another year, as will Megan. And then our youngest is Jacob. And he is 19 years old, finishing cosmetology school at the Davis uh, DATC. Cool. So we've lived in uh, West Layton, about four miles from Antelope Island, which makes it real convenient for me to hop on my bike and tool out to the island and get 50, 60 miles in on a ride. I still teach at Olympus High School. I've been teaching now for 26 years. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the more you tend to reflect a little bit on the past. And I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 26 years. What, what kind of legacy, when I leave as a, as a teacher from the education field, what do I want my legacy to be? You know, is it simply teaching kids facts about history? I hope not. There's a lot. That's important, but there's a lot more life lessons that I hope I've been able to share with my players and students over the last 26 years. And that kind of was the, the motivation of the brainchild behind deciding to uh, get involved with the Saints to Sinners race and make it not just about Mark Smith, but about doing something for other people and paying it forward. So that's kind of how we got to where we're at. Cool. Uh, just briefly, t- talk to me about the adoptions. I actually didn't know that. Uh, just yeah. briefly talk yeah. about each of those and, and how those came about and, and why you decided to adopt three it children. Was, it was way... It was way cool for us. We were, see, I was I, I was 21, and Christine was 19 mm. uh, when we got married. So we were young. Uh, I didn't think we were when I told my folks we were getting married. They, my dad said, I said, Dad, I, I, got, I want you to meet somebody. I'll bring her over, and I brought I brought Christine over to my folks' house to meet him, and. Uh, Dad, I said, there's something I want to tell you. And he said, hold on, sit down. i got to go take an Advil. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. So he came back and said, Dad, we're getting married. And uh, my uh, mother and he were just like, you got to be kidding me. You're little kids. <laughs> no, we're not. We're grown adults. We got yeah. this. We can do this. You got it all figured out, right? Yeah, exactly. So now I'm uh, their age, or closer to it. I realized, man, we were little kids, <laughs> but we did it. We uh, got married. Our first home was, they had a trailer park on campus up at Utah State, so we bought us a, a trailer, lived in the trailer park while we went to school, and we finished our degrees and then started thinking about it's time to start a family, and we tried for a couple of years to start a family, and it wasn't happening, and then we found out that it would be virtually impossible for us to uh, biologically have children. So we started looking into our options. And of course, uh, the best option was adoption. And 
uh, throughout the whole process. We felt we felt good about it. Never really, I guess, from you know my belief system. You know, we all came from heaven, and it doesn't matter how we get here. Some people come biologically. Some people are adopted, and it's all for a purpose. And we were able to, uh, at that time, you could only adopt. Uh, but we looked at every every adoption you could find, and what ended up working best for us was going through. Back then, it was called LDS Family Services. And I'm not sure they are involved in adoptions anymore, but back then they were. And uh, started praying and going through the process and ended up uh, being able to adopt our oldest, Megan. She was five years old. Picked her up in uh, Provo at the, I guess it's the Provo Hospital. I'm not sure what it's called down there. Uh, I remember I was doing... I won't say how fast, but well over the speed limit because driving, we lived in Salt Lake uh, to the hospital because we were so excited to go pick up our, our baby girl. So we were able to pick her up when she was five days old, and back then it, adoption five, was real secretive. Still. Five days or five years? Five days. Five days old. Five days okay. old. I guess I don't want to get too much of the details, but long story short, uh, the family the couple that had chosen us to adopt their child, they had notified us the Friday before that it was a go and uh, they wanted us to adopt Megan. And so, uh, sorry, it was the previous Thursday. And then we, Chris and I both were teaching school up in uh, Roy. And Friday I get a phone call from my wife and she's just devastated uh, we'd been writing letters to this mother for a month or more, and she said they've changed her mind. They've decided they want to keep keep the baby. So that was probably the one of the hardest weekends of our life. We had the room all decorated. It was pink. We had all the stuff ready to go. And, you know, there, for the moment, there goes your hopes of starting a family. Wow. So it was a brutal weekend, long weekend. And then the following Monday, uh, this is in November, middle of November of 19, uh, God, I better know my daughter was born, 94. And uh, we're just sitting there moping around the house. It was a Monday. And I believe it was a Monday. But I said, let's go to a movie. Let's get out of here. Got to get out of the house. Can't just sit around and be depressed. So we went to a movie called The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> And then we came out of the movie theater, and there was our, our one of my dear friends standing there in the theater. And I'm like, Steve, what are you doing, man? What are you doing here tonight? And he's all, dude, we've been looking all over for you. The adoption agency called our house. They were our contact because they couldn't get a hold of us. And they've been trying to find you because the parents have changed their mind, and you're supposed to go pick up Megan right now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we're like, wow. Crazy. Crazy. So yeah, so hopped in the car, drove way too fast to the hospital, picked up our little Megan, bundled her up, and then life smacks you in the face when now you realize you're a father, and yeah. here you go. Wow. So that's her story. That's cool. That was way cool. So we had her, so I was the head football coach at Roy at the time, adopted Megan, and then uh, put in for adoption again two years later. Uh, this guy came along. His story was totally different. 
we had no warning, no nothing. In fact, we were moving. We were moving from Roy back to Skyview High School in, in Cache Valley. We were packing the car, and we'd had our paperwork in but hadn't heard from anybody from the agency or talked to anybody or nothing. And we got a phone call and answered the phone, and they said, would you still like to adopt a, a second child? And I said, well, yeah. That well, we need you to come pick him up today <laughs> or tomorrow or sometime within the next 48 hours. I can't remember. It was like, you need to come now. Oh. And I'm like, okay, cool. So Thanks for the notice. Thanks, yeah. So, and Skyler was actually born in Boise, Boise, Idaho. So five hours from here, we hopped in our car and same thing, drove way too fast up to Boise. And things changed quickly. In Megan's case, we never, it was, you didn't get, uh, I got to see a picture of her birth parents at the agency. But then they, uh, you know, they didn't let us keep it. They took it back. You could correspond through email, but through a third party. So it was, back in the day, it was a lot more, uh, not secretive, but I guess privacy issues were involved. So we tooled up there. We get up to Boise, and this experience, his experience was out of this world because uh, his parents were sophomores in high school. And they had already chosen a, f- a family to place Skyler with in, in Boise. And, you know, uh, they're my heroes to this day because you can imagine how hard it is to give up your child. And we don't, I don't, we don't in the adoption world, we don't use the term give up, place your child, because uh, honestly, we believe it's their unconditional love for the child that they want to give them a home and a family. And at 16, sophomores in high schools, that's virtually impossible to do. And I'm not saying you can't, but for many people, that is. So they, they went through the, the heartache in the process of placing him with another family. And Skylar cried nonstop for a week, wouldn't quit crying, and never stopped. And so these, uh, the other parents took him back to the agency and said, you know, this just isn't a good fit. This just isn't going to work. Mm. And so, uh, so, man, you can imagine being the birth parents, what they're going through. And so Skyler was uh, a month old. So he was, the birth parents still visited him, but he was placed with a foster, fa- uh, foster mother for a month. And then we came, and the laws had changed, and things were different. And in this case, we actually got to meet the birth parents. So the, we got up there, went to the adoption agency, and Christine and I were there, and the birth parents and their mother, or her mother, I believe, was there, or his mother. The parent, their, so the so Skyler's grand, birth grandparents were there, and uh, we're in a room like this, not much different than this conference room. And they walked in, and the father had Skyler in his arms, <laughs> and. Uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> Sorry. Hey. Allergies. Here, bro. It's allergies. Yeah, right? allergies. That's what I tell my students at school. Hey, Mark, I teach a group every two weeks, and we get all sorts of uh, emotional human beings, and it's one of the best things on the planet you can do for yourself is just let it flow. Yeah. No, it is, but, you know, I'm a tough old football coach. so I know. So I'm going to break you a today. a tough teacher, yeah. <laughs> so that father, he... Uh, Handed me, I handed me Skyler. He placed him in my arms. A young man in high school, 
And he said, just promise me you'll love him. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. And I said, I promise we'll love him. And that's, and then we uh, threw him in the uh, backseat of the Camry and brought him home. So he was our second miracle. And then at that time, we thought we were done. And uh, because you could only adopt two children because there's such a long waiting list and so many people that would just give anything to raise a child and didn't know how we were going to get another child, but we just always felt like there was somebody missing. There was one other child that was meant to come to our home. So we didn't know how or what or when and just kept praying, praying for, you know, God's will to help us do it needed to be done. And we looked into international adoption and Holy cow, you know, on a school teacher's salary, that, was, that got way pricey real fast. And by now, they, this new thing had come around called in vitro. And we looked into in vitro, and same thing that would have required selling our home and whatnot. And never just felt like none of those options were right. And so kind of just let life happen. And I mentioned I was the head football coach at Roy for three years at the time Megan was born. And then went back to Cache Valley, and then now we were in uh, back at, at Skyview in Cache Valley, been away from Roy for several years, and it's now the year 2000, so I've been in, we've been living in Logan, back teaching at Skyview for three years, and we, out of the blue, we got a, a phone call from the adoption agency, and you know, we didn't have paper paperwork in or nothing because we couldn't. Mm. And but the agency called us and says, "There's a mother here who's pregnant, and says she wants to place her child with the Mark Smith family." Really? <laughs> yeah. And you hadn't even filled out paperwork or anything. No. How did she know you guys? That's the yeah. How, good question. That's what I said. What the, what's going on here? Well, uh, one of my football players' mothers, when I was a coach at Roy four years earlier, was good friends with our best friends that came and found us at the movie theater when we adopted Megan. And uh, this, w this mother, one of my football players, she worked at a convenience store. And she got to know the young woman who made the deliveries, made the rounds, brought products to the, to the, the convenience store or the mini mart, whatever it was. And she was pregnant. And she asked this woman, she says, do you by chance know anybody that would be willing to adopt my baby? And she hadn't spoken to this woman in four years. And she said, as a matter of fact, I think I do. And she just said that our name, had po our name popped into her head. Wow. So she called our, our friend to get a say, do you know where the Smiths are at? She didn't know where we lived anymore. And our friend Amy, she, she did, and she put us in touch with the agency. And because this mother came into the agency wanting to place the child with us specifically, that qualified us to be able to adopt a third child. So things got even looser. We went and met her when she was, uh, for the first time, when she was eight months pregnant at the agency. We met her before she ever even had Jacob. She wanted to meet us. And then all went well. And then 
the day uh, Jacob was born, born in Ogden, we went and picked Jacob up in Ogden. And that's our third miracle. So uh, we missed out on the blessings of having children biologically, but Lord made up for it all in the end because I wouldn't trade the experience of adopting those three kids for, for anything in this world. So yeah. it was really awesome, really cool experiences. That's pretty amazing, Mark. Uh, I haven't met your wife yet, I don't believe, but uh, just so uh, you all know out there, Mark Smith, one of the just one of those guys you meet and you can tell he's real, he's authentic, he's kind. He's definitely a tough guy. He can ride his bike like no other human I've ever met. Um, but boy, I, I can tell you what, he's a, he's a kind, genuine human being. And uh, the first time I met him, uh, uh, just by his handshake, I knew he was a good guy. And it takes a special pers- person, I believe, a uh, special couple to adopt three kids. I mean, that's you know, you're taking on a whole world. You don't know their background, where they're coming from. Um, I don't know. My wife and I talked about it a bit because we love kids more than anything, and uh, we talked about it a few times. But I couldn't quite get myself to pull the trigger. So I, uh, I'm impressed by your uh, devotion and your uh, ability to raise these three human beings and i'm sure you've done a hell of a job so <laughs> i commend you i don't know if they they'd say the same thing but we've tried we've tried to do our best well i know you're you're a good human being <clears throat> and i'm sure your wife is also or uh, i'm sure you wouldn't be with her so tell me a little bit mark about your just a teeny bit about your upbringing and how your upbringing is uh kind of affected how feisty you are <laughs> Feisty, I like that. <laughs> or tough. Feisty. Like, well, what is it about your uh, upbringing and, and what it is in you that you, you've got to fight like maybe well, not many human beings that I've ran into in my life? I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, everybody's different and does things in different ways, but I definitely think my upbringing prepared me for my career and uh, as a teacher and coach and... I mean, I pretty much just had a normal, normal childhood, and I have three younger brothers and a little sister. We're all about two years apart. I'm the oldest, and I've always, since as long as I can remember, loved sports. I'm sports, we're a sports family, and just grew up, lived, just lived on Macintosh Lane, just. Uh, up here by Big Cottonwood Canyon, and had a great childhood, lots of great experiences with family, grandparents, friends, probably had it too good. And I think the first event in life that really prepared me or helped mold me or shape me into who I hope I've become or am becoming was the biggest bombshell imaginable for a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, and that is when uh, unexpectedly, my mother announced to my father and to the children that she wanted a divorce. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, most of my students come from single-parent families today. It's, it's the norm. But back then, I was maybe one of two kids in my entire seventh-grade class whose parents 
we're getting a divorce. How how old were you when she told you that? I was I was uh, thirteen. I was thirteen, and then I had brothers eleven, nine, seven, and then a, a little sister that was two or three. And uh, I I guess what made this a little bit unique was that it was not expected. It was not. It was totally out of the blue. Went to school in the morning. Happy family would always be in. Come home from school that day, and it's over, flat out over. And so, uh, talk about a bombshell for well, any children. So you know, people talk about divorce, and uh, it's no big deal for kids. I've been there. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's the norm or not. It's a huge, huge deal, a big deal. But uh, what made our situation unique was that it was just over. Uh, there were no signs that anything was wrong. My dad was completely caught off guard. And I'm, I don't want to say anything negative about my mother, but uh, for whatever reasons, she was done. Hmm. And uh, he left. And so that was, I was playing baseball. Baseball's huge out in the Brighton area. And I was on the all-star team. And we were playing, uh, uh, we took state. We won the Babe Ruth State Championship, and we were going to Arizona to play in the regionals. And my three younger brothers and I were tight, you know, just like your brothers. It's mm-hmm. like same deal, exact deal. Love it. Yeah, yeah. You, you mess with one Smith, you mess with them all. <laughs> uh, my brother Shane got in more fights, and I'd have to break them up at the at the bus stop in front of our house because uh, you know that's what you do. Take care mm-hmm. of family. Sure. And but I I I was 13 and uh in those days divorce uh, definitely favored the mother so she was granted custody of all the kids and pretty much everything else and my dad had to start over move back in with his with grandma his mother and but the judge ruled that when we were the children were 12 they could decide which parent they wanted to live with until then my mother had full custody and I was already 13, and I didn't want to, I didn't feel comfortable living with my mother anymore. I wanted to live with dad. And so I told my brothers, I went, my coach was picking me up to take us to the airport to go catch our plane for the baseball tournament in Arizona in you know, good old wooden paneled station wagon days. And I said goodbye to my brothers, and they're all standing there on the porch crying, and I'm bawling. And my mother doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> so I hopped in, I left, went and played baseball in Arizona for a week. And I came home and I got to Bywater Park up here. And I got on the payphone. We had those, but kids don't know what those are anymore. Yeah. Had my dime, got on, got on the payphone, was in my Levi Strauss jeans and my Pac Man t shirt. Called my dad and said, Dad, will you come pick me up? Because I want to live with you. Wow. And so he said, sure, I'll, I'll be there, son. So I moved in with he and grandma and grandpa at their house, and we couldn't stay there anymore. So we moved out, found us a little dumpy duplex in Holiday, moved in there, and it was my dad and I, bachelors, and I was, that's when I moved from Brighton to the Olympus Holiday area. And, I remember attending my first day at school in eighth grade at uh, Olympus Junior High School. Mm -hmm. 
And walking in that front door of the high school and looking down that hall and not knowing a single person, not a soul, all alone. So I can relate to kids in that way. So long story short, then my uh, brother Shane turned 12, came. My brother John turned 12, came and lived with us. And eventually my brother Dave came and lived with us. So uh, my dad was a single parent raising four boys. So it was the five of us. And that was good times. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely needed a mother's influence. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like the fellas. But uh, you know, to show you the mindset of a, of a junior high kid where image is everything, soul searching, trying to find friends, whatever it takes. We, we were so poor, we, we had a, Shane and I had to share a bed. And it was on cinder blocks, the mattress. I was in ninth grade when he came out. I was in ninth grade, and he was a seventh grader. And I said, Shane, so help me. You tell anybody that you and I sleep in the same bed at school, I'll kill you, man. That's so funny. So we started uh, putting our lives back together and uh, got ultimately reunited with all my brothers. And... Uh, you know, I saw my dad going through this experience, which is where you talk about, you know, events that have mold us, mold us and shape us through this whole thing. I mean, which was a huge, just um, crushing, devastating blow for him as much as anybody else, if not more. So, uh, you know, you could see he was just going through his own personal hell and miserable. And, uh, you know, and but my dad has never never been one one to question and he never did a lot of people for personal reasons which I'm not judging anybody you know blame God or turn their back on God and my dad never did that he stayed true to the faith through this entire entire mess and uh, which was a huge inspiration to me to see you know the hell my dad went through that you know if he can do it I can do it and uh, we had to, we, you know, my dad had to work all the time. So uh, a lot of the raising of our was done by ourselves. I mean, we learned to cook at an early age, to do laundry at an early age, uh, and uh, grew up real fast. And went through that experience, and it was so traumatic for for me. In fact, though, I, you know, you talk about depression. Uh, school doesn't matter anymore. Great, you know, your grades go tank. And teachers yeah. wondering what's up. It's like, you know, school just doesn't matter when you have sure. these problems. And all those things has helped me be, become a better school teacher, I think, because I get those kids in class that are going through whatever personal trials they're going through. And, and you know, I get it. I get, I get where they're coming from. And so that definitely helped prepare me for the, the field of education, make me better that way. But uh, through it all, um, you know, my I could, through the depression, sports saved my life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you think about life sucks and how everything's miserable, and so some people turn to drugs or alcohol. And my escape was sports. Those two or three hours I was playing football or baseball or basketball, you know, that was you weren't thinking about any of your problems. Yeah. You were just out there trying to trying to win, trying sure. to beat the other guy. Sure. 
And so sports also plays a huge part in saving my life. Yeah. Kept me kept me on track. And then my dad says, oh, he can, he'll never forget. It was about a year after the divorce because uh, I only... Ole Junior High was just down the street from where my dad worked, and I'd always stop by his work after school and say hi to him and check in with him. And and he says he'll he'll never forget that day I came in to work and I had a smile on my face. And so, you know, it's, it's so I've been there, and and so I but but it's I guess like you said, it's made me made me tough. In fact, I, in a way, I feel bad for people that haven't had trials or challenges in their life because they're really they're getting a bum rap because. Mm-hmm. Those are what make us who we are. For sure. And I tr- I've tried to partake, use that with my teaching and my students. Because, uh, you know, in this day and age, we er- it just seems like everybody's a victim or, you know, there's no hope for the future. This generation's uh, standard of living is not going to be as good as their, their parents was. And you know, just all this, these negative vibes. And... And kids come to me, and if they, they tell me their story, then I tell them mine and say, hey, look, I get it. My life sucked, too. I've been there, done that. But you don't have to be a victim. Yeah. You can be whatever you want to be, yeah. and you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so that's been been a big part of who I am, and that's where how I, I, we grew up. And to finish the story, I got... Uh, I went on my mission to Japan, Osaka, Japan, and came home, and I came home to my uh, stepmother. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to call her our stepmother. She's our mother. And uh, my dad, is, I know my dad's been married 30 years last November because he got married two weeks before my mission ended. Really? And then I got married the next summer. So <laughs> we've both been married for 30 years. and. <laughs> You know, I look at my dad's life, and he got his sons back. He got his life back together. His best friend's been his spouse for 30 years now, Mm -hmm. and he never gave up. He never gave up, and that's a huge lesson I've taken in my life. And I'll always be thankful to my dad, because if he would have given up, I don't know if I'd be sitting here right now. That's amazing. What's what's your mom up to? Uh, You know... Be honest, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't had her. much, much, much communication with her. Uh, my younger brothers have a little bit more because they lived with her longer than I did. Uh, they, and I have a the sad, the sad part is I have a forty-year-old sister that I don't even really know. Really, Stephanie. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I she was only three when I when I left uh-huh. and moved out and. Uh, so, but they moved to California, lived in California most of their lives, Christmas cards, call here and there, but really not a lot of interaction there, and, and lost track of them for a while. And my, one of my brothers just uh, told me they live in Las Vegas now. They moved mm. there two years ago. Mm. So maybe I'll tell them, hey, I'll, hey. I'll meet you at the finish line. You never know. <laughs> I'll come down to Vegas. Hey, I'll ride my bike to Vegas, huh? Wow, isn't that interesting? So, yeah, isn't that wild? No so, accidents, bro. No. So, no, I definitely will let them know what, what's going on. And, That's crazy. And uh, so, yeah, some communication, but really... Very little. Very little. She was probably upset when you left to live with your dad, I would assume. Yeah, very. Um, in, in her, we were her world. Yeah, she, I'm sure. Us bo- the boys and my, and my youngest, my sister, were, we were her pride and joy. And 
And, uh, and you know, in her defense, I also give the person I am today a lot of the values I have and what I believe religiously all came from her. Yeah. I was trained. So those first 12 years of life, mm-hmm. I, I dedicate to my yeah. biological mother who, who taught me those principles that even when she didn't think they were right for her anymore, yeah. there was no going back for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was huge. That was, so would you say she was a good mother for the first 13 years? For the first 13 years of my life, I couldn't imagine having a better mother. Really? I, she, she was a... I was very fortunate to have her for 13 years. That's really cool. And mm-hmm. then I've been very fortunate to have my uh, other mother for 30 years. 30 years, yeah. Yep. Well, you never know. You might have uh, two mothers again yeah, that you, you communicate with. You, you do. You never know what life's going to lend you. No, you never know. So, cool. It's a pretty good story. I can relate, Mark. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was 16 or so, and uh, your story almost matches mine uh, identically. I didn't necessarily pick, or I sort of did, but my dad lived in California. We either kind of lived in California, and my mom decided she'd had enough. But So I moved back to Utah with my mom, but I was kind of back and forth for two or three years. But I remember going to school in California. I didn't know a soul. Didn't know a soul. Yeah. Had to make new friends, and I was scared to death. Absolutely. Coming from Salt Lake City, and you know, and being one of the guys that got along with everybody and knew everybody in the entire school, and then, oh, by the way, you're moving to California. Just shocking, you know, blew my whole world. But it also, like you says, allowed me to get to be able to communicate and and understand people on a different level. You know, I got a lot more compassion for human beings. Had I not had those those experiences, another interesting note is you remember the outfit you were wearing when you made the phone call, yeah, the Levi Strauss in your uh, Pac-Man shirt. Yeah, yeah, isn't that wild? You know how I know that was impactful for you because you remember the exact details. That was a big deal for you that day. Well, and it was a big it was a big deal because that's all I had when I really? moved in with my dad. Um, and I I mean I've held no grudges against my my mother or anything like that. I've way past those days, but I called her. Well, my dad picked me up and went to grandma's house and I called her after I got to grandma's house to say, you know, I need to come home and get my stuff. Cause I, that was my baseball gear and the, wow. and the Pac-Man shirt and the, my Levi's. And, and she said, no, you're not welcome here. Can't really? have anything. So I literally left left with the clothes on my back really yeah wow that was so that's how that that's why i remember that that that's impactful brother yeah crazy stuff that's nuts um so i know you're a high school teacher and a football coach and uh you train a lot on your bike um uh if you weren't teaching high school what would your dream job be if i well i'm starting to think more about that because you know, and I got four years to go till I have my thirty years in education, and and I've enjoyed teaching, and I continue, to, I will continue to teach. But I start thinking more about I'm not that old; I'll only be fifty five. You know, what are some other things that I want to do, or what I might be like to experience as a career? And who knows? Maybe I'll teach for forty more years. I never know. But 
I mean, uh, my dream job or something I like to do, my wife's going to say, yeah, you sure do. I like to talk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love motivational speaking. I used to work for uh, the Salt Lake Organizing Committee in 2002 when the Olympics were here. And I got to be one of the 12 trainers that trained all the volunteers for the Olympic Games. And I'd love to uh, take this gig on the road and motivation, give motivational speeches to young people, share my life experiences in my old age and my young age, and try to encourage them and let them know, because there's so much negativity out there in the world that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the American dream is alive. It's still there. If you want it, you can have it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. And uh, so I guess my dream job would be, able, be helping other people, like your job, helping other people and uh, motivating and inspiring other people to be the best they, best them they can be. Yeah, I love that. Um, let's talk a little bit about your race and uh, what you're doing for your training. What are you doing? Tell the guys uh, or listeners, guys, gals, world, <laughs> humans, tell them a little bit about your training regimen. You've been updating me every few days. Uh, walk them through a couple of, maybe walk them through your, uh, your ride the other day when you got lost, your 240-mile <laughs> ride. Just walk them through. Let them know what it takes to yeah. train for a 500. I, I don't know if it race. Takes, takes that. That may be more stupidity than anything. Well, just tell but, them this time. It's part of your journey. Tell them about absolutely. how that's going, man. Part of the it's training. That, I gotta get. I'm still. I think I'm still hoarse from that. Yeah, like you probably still need to hydrate. Probably gonna. I might have to push pause and go grab you a gallon of water. <laughs> we gotta keep you hydrated to get you to the finish line of this podcast. Well, I'm a, actually, you know. Uh, I got into I, the training for this race. Actually, started for me probably when I was 35 years old. Uh, when we lived in Smithfield, and my neighbor next door, Rod, just a great guy. He he was a hardcore cyclist, cat one rider, done it all, just just hardcore. And I was a football coach and teaching in the, down the street at the high school. And I, I exercised and I ran and I made fun of those guys in spandex that ride their bikes around and never even ever dreamed of being, of riding a bike. But uh, there was this race called Loto John. I never even heard of it until I moved to Cache Valley. But it's kind of big in Cache Valley because it starts in Logan and goes to Jacksonville, Wyoming. So they come, it goes right down Main Street. I remember a couple times I'd go down, and my buddy Rod, my neighbor, he, he rode in it all the time. What's his last name? Rod Lishman is his name. And he, uh, and so it was in 2000 and, what year was it? 2002. I went down to Main Street, watched the racers come by, and I thought, man, that looks like that could be pretty fun. And so... After the race, I went next door and I talked to Rod. I said, "Hey, Rod," and he had a he had a he was always showing me his new bike and stuff. He he said, "Mark, come check this out." And I'm, okay, whatever. And then, but I also knew he had a tandem bike. And so after the 2002 Loda Jaw, I said, "Hey, Rod, let you and I ride your tandem bike next year in Loda Jaw." And he looked at me and said, "Bro." Not happening. <laughs> no. I only ride my tandem bike with my wife. <laughs> I don't ride it with dudes. 
I mean, to each their own. Some people do, some, but no, he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so I said, oh, that's okay, whatever. And then I remember coming home from work, coming home from school, and uh, I don't know if it was that fall or probably was that fall after the race. And Rod, you know, he was always having me come over and check out his newest wheels or bikes or gear. And he was sitting in his driveway. Our driveways were right next to each other. And he had this bike, and I'm pulling in my driveway, and I'm, I'm tired. And he says, Mark, come here. I want to show you something. And I'm like, I'm just, I just want to go in the house. And I said, okay, I'll come over. So I walked over, and Rod had this, this new road bike. And he said, what do you think of this bike? Yeah, that's pretty cool, Rod. And he says, it's yours. Mm. I'm a what? Really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. He went and, he went and bought me a, a brand new back, diamondback road bike. Really? Back in the day. Wow. And he said, there's one condition that comes with this bike. He said, I'll give you this bike, but you have to promise me you will ride Loto Jaw. Wow. And I'm all... Okay, bro, I'm in. <laughs> I'll do it. And so, so he gave me the bike, and I had no clue about uh, We just ride a bike, right? You just start pedaling. Anybody can do it. It's no big oh. deal. But you, know, you learn in the world of cycling, it's, it's a lot more than just starting to pedal. So I got on that. So he taught me how to ride. I remember he took me on my first ride, and we went 15 miles up in Cache Valley, and most, mostly dead flat. And we got back to our houses, and I went in and laid down on the floor in the living room. <laughs> I'm not getting the lawn mowed today, huh? <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Wow. And, uh, but he had me hooked, and I, made, I promised him I'd ride in Lodajah. So I was going to do it in fall of 2003. So I started training. Rod taught me to ride, taught me you know, basically everything I know. He kind of was my Jedi master of cycling. And I, st- I started falling in love with it. And then I did my first 30-miler and thought I was cool. And then I did a 50-miler, and I was really big time. And, and once I, I did 60 miles, but I was on the west side of town, and I was so gassed I had to call my wife. And she came and picked me up because I was too tired to make it home. And then I did my first century, and, and I trained all next, that all next year. I signed up for Loda Jaw 2003, and... At the same time, I was still teaching, coaching, and I was fin- doing my master's degree. And I, I finished my master's degree that year and started applying for jobs outside of education. I've been teaching for 10 years. I thought, you know what? I'm tired of having six part-time jobs and teaching. and I'm being poor. I'm going to go make some money. And so I started interviewing for jobs. And, and in end of August, I got hired, or beginning of August, I got hired by the Department of the Navy to be an an instructional designer for them in the Navy. And that's when they said, here's your job. We'd love to have you. You need to come to to Pensacola, California. I mean, Pensacola, Florida. Florida. Which, by the way, has the most beautiful white sand beaches on the planet. Almost as good as the ones you sent me on the yacht when you guys took your trip. But five minutes from our house, Pensacola Beach. Cool. It was way cool. So I, I took the job. So... Let my principal know I wasn't coming back. And then uh, this would have been, and then uh, they wanted me, they said, I said, when do you want me? And they wanted me the end, the, 
either the, very, the end of August. And I'm all, crap. Lot of jobs September. It's the first. <laughs> it's always the first Saturday after Labor Day in right. September, right? So yeah. it was like September 9th, Lot of This was ten days before Lot of Wow. And and I thought, nah. I said, to my maybe I shouldn't take the job, huh? and I got to ride Lot <laughs> My wife's all, yeah, funny, nice try. <laughs> no, so I took the job and didn't ride Lot Really. No, we moved to Florida. What? I was living in Florida, dude. Come on, you could have flown home for the race. <laughs> they would, they wouldn't let me, man. I had a job. I was working now. I have a new job, so I didn't do it. Didn't do Lodija. Darn. And but I rode. We lived 17 miles from the base. I'd ride my my road bike. My broad gave me. I'd ride it to work every day. It was awesome year round. And uh, but dead flat. There's not a. <laughs> I've lived in Utah my whole <laughs> life. I'm like. You could put a marble on the street in Florida. It ain't going anywhere because yeah. it's just flat. Yeah. And for a, for a mountain, I'd have to, a bridge, a bridge over a canal would be the closest thing to a hill. But so I rode my bike to work, kept doing that job and had great experiences, made a lot of great friends. Couldn't have been any better except for the fact that uh, I was on the road two, three, sometimes six weeks traveling the country, evaluating training programs for the Navy. So, uh, Miss it and my wife was home raising the three kids. And then when I was home, I was in a cubicle, and I've, I'm not a cubicle guy. <laughs> so it didn't take long before I figured out I didn't want to be away from my family that much. I didn't want to work in a cubicle. And, you know, when I was coaching and teaching, I didn't ever once look at a clock. It seemed like you never had time to get everything done you wanted to do in the classroom or on the football field or whatever. And so we decided we'd move back to our home. We'd rented our home. I took a year sabbatical, so if it didn't work out, I could come back to Skyview. So we're moving back, and then my brother John called me and said, hey, the head football job is open here at your alma mater, Olympus, in Holiday. Come back and take it. I said, okay, whatever. I wasn't really thinking much about it, just going home. But ended up interviewing in the spring for that year. Got hired. Uh, March 2004 as the new head football coach at Olympus High School. And so we came back, and we almost made it to Cache Valley. We had to stop a hundred mile or uh, yeah, hundred miles short in Holiday, and bought the house next door to the house I lived in in high school. <laughs> Which uh, the neighbors thought that was interesting when I could tell them all about their hey, my bedroom was that one down there in the basement corner there. That's cool. But so that's uh, but so um, by the so I didn't so I and now as the head football coach, that uh, was a. As other high school coaches can relate, that's a full-time, full-time job. I mean, when you're not teaching, you're eating, sleeping, and drinking football. I had no time for anything but football. So no cycling. So I never, I didn't even, didn't even get on my bike for, for uh, from 2004 till 2008. Wow. So, so I was, I was off the bike. So you didn't get loaded you done for years. Didn't get loaded. So you when done. was your first loaded you experience? Well, so when I. Uh, Resigned as the head football coach in 2008. I was still teaching at Olympus and being, and being an assistant coach as well. But uh, that's when I, I got on. I've, it was October 2008, and I, I got some time to ride my bike now. So uh, I, got, I still got the diamond back, never sold it. But my neighbor up the street was a bit of a cyclist, so he sold me my first giant. got my first carbon bike. Started riding, and in 2009, so in spring of 2009, I signed up for Lodija. I said, all right, now I'm going to do this. But now it gotten so big, 
you know, it's a lottery system. I didn't get in. Really? So in 2009, I didn't get into Lodajah. Oh. I was just devastated. So I looked around, well, what's the next biggest race, one-day race I can find? And it was called Tour of Park City. And it was 100, and back then it was 170 miles. And so to kind of make myself feel better, I, I did that race in 2009. I did that 170-mile race. I barely, I, I finished it. I didn't do anything special. I finished it. I was crying at the end. It was a brutal I, race. It was. It's a tons of elevation. Tons, tons of, of climbing. Tons of climbing. That's the climb I do now all the time. Yeah. <laughs> now it's easy. Up, up Mirror Lake Highway, Mount Baldy. <laughs> yeah. So I did that, and then I applied again in 2010 to get into Loda Jaw, and this is my and I got in. Nice. And I was like, awesome. So I uh, I rode trained. All the mount- I lived here in Holiday, did all the mountains you could do around here, trained for that thing. And you think, talk about mindset and preparation. You know, when you're never done anything, like, I mean, I just wanted to, I didn't know if I could finish, you know. That's a, lot of, that's, that's a tough thing to just ride a bike 200 miles in a day. So I wanted to finish. My goal was to finish. And so I signed up, did the race, you know, I wish I knew now what I knew then when I was young. <laughs> no. Don't we all? Of course. <laughs> but uh, the crazy thing is I was doing the race, and you know, you know, you got the 30 miles to Preston, and then you climb Strawberry Canyon. And I got halfway up Strawberry Canyon, and my seat post slipped. Oh. So it, it, I, it drops right down. To the bottom. To the really? bottom. <laughs> so, so I'm standing up, pedaling up 25 miles up, Strawberry Canyon, and then uh, I get to the top of Strawberry Canyon, and they have a feed zone and an, and an aid station, and I pull over, and I I you know I needed some I needed to get my seat raised, and so I pull over, and then this guy comes running out to my bike, and uh, to help me fix my seat, one of the volunteers. It was Rod. No. It was Rod Lishman. Oh, dude. Now life. Now he gave me you know, he gave me everything. Not no just the way. bike. Not just the bike. He gave me the gear. He gave me the everything. My my mini tool you keep in your bag to, yeah. to fix it. He gave me that mini tool. Really? And Rod runs up to me and it's Mark. And I'm a Rod. And he gets he unzips my bag. He gets his tool. He gave me what? In two thousand and three. Yeah. yeah out, raises my seat, adjusts it for me. And I said, Rod, I'm keeping my promise, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to finish loading job just for you. Yeah. I, I, I'm keeping the end of the deal. Wow. Why was he at the feed station? Was he cycling or was no, he, he just was a volunteer? Just, he was just taking a year off and was volunteering. When he doesn't ride it, he, he volunteers and helps out. What a story. So, no, yeah, so no accidents I, there, bro. So I run into Rod. He I fixes my it. bike for me. And uh, he uh, and I finished. I did the. I finished the race, and I was. I was my wife. Uh, I was. I. You look at your mental growth, how it changes. And I got to Alpine to go up Snake River Canyon, pulled over, and I was crying. And my stomach hurt, and I had cramps, and and but I finished, and I did it in like ten hours and thirty minutes, or something like that. Wow, that's fast. And uh, and then I saw Rod at the finish, gave him a big hug, and. And it was, 
It was like it was great. But you know, I think I always tell Roddy he's he's a big inf- he, he's not one of those people I wrote my letter to, but could have. But the one thing I learned from Rod, the big thing I learned, which is part of this, I've incorporated into my DNA is uh, pay it forward. Yeah. You know, Rod expected nothing in return, but he would always say, "Make sure you pay it forward." Yeah. Help somebody else out. Wow. You know, look how he didn't realize the monster he had yeah, created, he created. <laughs> when he gave me that diamond back. Yeah. But ever since that day, big part of my life is, you know, how can I pay it forward? Mm-hmm. Especially with, uh, well, anybody, anytime, anywhere, but cyclists, I'll sell something on KSL. They'll come to my house and I'll, I'll sell whatever they want, the seed or mm-hmm. buy. And then I go, I, then I got all this gear for you and I load them up and, yeah. you know, pay it forward. Awesome, dude. And so that, so, so that, then that, after I finished that first year, so um, my wife's okay, good. Well, now you, you got that out of your system. We can go on with life. And then I'm like, hun, I want to do it again. I know I can do it faster. Yeah. <laughs> Trained again. And, uh, and so that was, I got to 2011. Then I, and got fifth place on the podium. And then, I'm like, I can win this thing. <laughs> so can't quit yet, hon. We're just yeah. warming up. So I tried. So then my goal became, became to win, and that started the, the avalanche. And then I rode in 2012, didn't win. 2013, didn't win. 2014, didn't win. And then uh, after Loto Jaw 2014, I started getting these severe cramps and pains in fact, I claim that I, my claim to fame is that I can relate to childbirth and women say, no, you can't. Don't kid yourself. But the doctor said, now you know what it's like to, to have yeah, a baby. They were that baby. bad. And it was Jill. And uh, anyways, we uh, went to I went to the doctor. We went to the we were at a bees game. And this was in July, actually, before I knew what I even had. And I was training for uh, ultimate challenge. Because that was usually the last big one I'd do before Loda Jaw. And we're at the Bees game, middle of July, and I'm freezing cold and I'm cramping and I feel terrible and I couldn't stick it out. I told the family, I'll just go lay in the car until the game's over. And then did that. And then when they got done, I said, You just got to take me to the hospital. And we uh, went to the hospital and did a CAT scan and x rays. And they diagnosed me with diverticulitis, which I had no clue what that was. But it's, I've now found out a lot more about it, but it's basically an inflammation in, in your in your uh, intestine or your colon that uh, you know some people can live with it with diet. But I've, you know, by now I'm Mr. Clean. I eat clean. I'm always cutting weight for racing and nothing I do with my diet. And I and just try. They well, there's really no cure for it. If you can't manage it with diet, then they have to go in and remove remove all of it or part of it. And, who knows what? But I didn't want to do that, so I ended up stuck it out. I did load a jaw that year, and then uh, after in October, I had another huge attack. And my, the doctor said, "Mark, it's time. We just need to remove your your that infected part of your colon." So I went in on de- uh, on December fourth, twenty fourteen, and it was a little bit scary for me because uh, you know. The doctor said, depending upon how, how bad it is when we get in there, if all goes well, we can just remove a third of it, uh, but we might have to remove the whole thing. And if we do, then 
you'll know because when you wake up, you'll have a bag, you'll have a colostomy bag. So it was for a guy that loves riding bikes and had chased this cycling dream of winning Loda Jaw for all those years. And it was, it was scary. And so I went in, had the surgery. It was a big deal. And, and I remember after the surgery, when I woke up, when I came out of it in my, in my uh, hospital room, first thing I did was I, hurried my, I whipped the covers down because <laughs> I had to see if Looking I had a, the bag. Is there a bag there or not? And I pulled the covers back and no bag. No bag. No bag. Thank and I goodness. was like, thank you, Lord. And then I, so they had to remove about a third of my colon. Mm. And then they just, you know, hook you back together. And, and then uh, I was out of commission. I was, I mean, I, I was out of work for a month with recovery from that. And, but yeah, I should mention though, uh, my dad lived just around the corner, up the block. Uh, so he was, we grew up in that neighborhood forever. And he still lives in that same house in that neighborhood. And uh, part of my, as I started healing up and could start walking, part of my rehab would be to walk around the block. And my dad, he'd come down every day, knock on my door, and get me up and help me outside. And we'd, we'd make one lap around the block. And I'd look at him and go, man, I'm the old man. <laughs> I would just, you know, you just take these little baby steps. It'd take us yeah. 20 minutes to go around the block. And there, there was yeah. dad by my side. So we had some good chats and talks and he was with me the whole way as I was going through that recovery process. And so that was in December and I went, I went back to work in January and hadn't even been on a bike or anything, and, you know, but I still wanted to ride Loto Jaw and started training. But I, you know, now my, I, I suffered since the surgery, I suffered from chronic constipation and life was miserable diet was hard and you know how it is eating on a bike it's not like you can eat your normal diet on a bike but i battled through it came up with things i could do or eat or whatnot and and uh did load a jaw in 2015 and then got dropped i got dropped up the climb the king of the mountain climb you know before it gets serious finished the race and you know i thought man you know i'm maybe i'm done but you know, there's no quitting in the Smith family. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. My brother says, you know, the only, the only reason you can ever quit anything is if you're in a body bag. Then yeah. we'll, we'll let you quit. Like, stop. Stop. So I said, well, I decided, okay, I'm going to give it one more shot. And that was 2016. So I guess I was kind of hard on myself, too, because I'd not only been out of surgery for, uh, uh, it's going to be like, what, eight months since my surgery, and I was riding loaded jaw. And I'll never forget, though, there was this team that I rode for Logan Race Club, and there was this team called the Red Burrows from Vegas. And I'm sure they were nice guys, but we didn't get along during the, the ride. Didn't had a few things that weren't too nice to say to each other And uh, as we were competing. And the one problem I had with my surgery was, um, you know, sometimes I'd have bladder issues where I couldn't con- control when I when I had to uh, go bathroom or not. So we're flying down the backside of Strawberry, and I'm up front, and it just hits me. Nothing I can do about it. Um, I just wet my pants. <laughs> and it's it's spraying out my yeah. bibs on the red burrow. So hopefully burl. no one's behind you. Yeah, the red burrow was right red behind burl, me. Gotcha. <laughs> it was right, so it was spraying him. 
So he wasn't too happy. So he pulls up alongside me and said, dude, what the crap? What are you doing, man? Like, I said, bro, I'm sorry, man. I had my colon removed six months ago, and I just can't, I, I can't help it. I didn't mean to do it on purpose. He goes, you had your colon removed? And I'm all, yeah. And he goes, okay, bro, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was ready, uh. so I was ready to throw in the towel. I didn't think I could make it happen. And I said, okay, 2016, I'm going to give it one more shot. And uh, 2016, seven years of trying, thousands of miles, tens of thousands of miles of riding, thousands of hours of training. If the dream came true, I won the Cat 5, the, you know, the bottom lowest level license category group in 2016. And uh, I was like, uh, that was way cool. Yeah. So my wife saw. Oh, I know what I did. I promised my wife I would, if I ever won, I said I'll quit. I'll I'll call it good. And it's not <laughs> it's not that she hates cycling, but she gets freaked out because there's always crashes, you know. And oh, yeah. your bro Barry, your brother broke his hip thirty oh, miles yeah. into the race, and two guys died that one year. And there's always ambulances hauling riders off the side of the road. Yeah, she just didn't want me to be one of those guys. But you won. We can quit now, right? And I and then I. I got my, at the award ceremony, you get a free entrance fee the next year. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, hon, it's free. <laughs> we got to come back. We got to try again. Yeah, came, got back, came back in 2017, won the Cat Fives again. And I go, hon, I got another free race. Yeah. <laughs> we we got to come again. And she says, I know what you're going to do. You're going to do the next one. And then we'll have to do it. We got to do it two more years because at 10 years, they give you an award for doing it 10 years, the 2000 mile club. Yeah. And so and she was right. So we did it in 18, and I won it for a third time. And, and then uh, things, you know, I'd, I'd reached my goal of, of getting, winning three in a row. And then, you know, then I was, I was just I, I was a little burned out, and I was ready for something else. But at the same time, I had a dear friend who had a cancer called myeloma that's uncurable, and we'd started a cycling club, and We'd always talked about riding together, and so I said, you know, Chris, I said, Chris, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna do the fun ride for my tenth year and ride it with my buddy Rich, because uh, you know life's short, and one regret I didn't want to have is, heaven forbid, something happened to Rich, and I never got to do my ride with him. I'd really have had that would have been bad. So I signed up for this year, 2019, in the cyclist sport division. Uh, He's, he wrote it, he's ridden it twice since he got diagnosed with uh, myeloma, uh, but he's, he's never gotten there before the 8 o'clock cutoff. Mm. So, Rich, if you're out there, you better get on your bike, buddy, because yeah. this is the year. <laughs> Maybe you could just... You're, he's, I'm going to pull him. Pull him. I'm going to pull him to get him across the finish line. Maybe just grab a uh, rope and tie it yeah. to his seat. Actually, when he was going through chemo and we did the Huntsman 1-4, we had a tow rope. Nice. He, we want. We were, I was going to pull him around, but he. Said, I got this. He wouldn't let us do it. So he's a tough, tough dude. Good for him. So and then I can actually see them. I, I've heard the Tetons are beautiful when you come into uh, Teton Village. There, I've never seen them before because you're always racing, looking down at the yeah, rubber exactly. in front of you. So then I said, "Hon, I got great news. I'm. I'm. This tenth load of jaw is just going to be for fun." And she's all, oh, "That's cool," but then. A couple years ago, I was riding up by East Canyon, and I ran into this 
guy, you know, you just randomly run into people and you make a lot of friends that way. Yeah, you do. Cycling. Cycling. Started talking to him. His name was Mike Conti. And we just started, we're pedaling along the lake. I, I didn't know him. We just ran into each other, riding a little bit. What do you do? And he, he was one of those extreme endurance cyclists. And he told me how uh, he did Ram, race, uh, was a, a tr- race across America. And these other saints to sinners and, and I go, oh, dude, that sounds way cool. But see, and I said, you know, with, with my health issues, my colon issues, there's no way in heck I could even attempt to do something like that because of my dietary needs and and everything else. So kind of put it out of my mind, but uh, another, so I, you know, I, but I did load a jaw, but now I had this in the back of my head, this other stuff. And, and in this last year as well, it's been a year, year now, uh, I was able to get on a nutritional supplement um, that has totally taken care of my chronic constipation and my insomnia is gone. And I'm, I've, I'm, I, feel like, I feel like a normal person for the first time since 2004. And so then it, the light bulb lit up and said, hey, there's nothing holding me back now from, yeah. from, you're healthy. from doing Race Across America. Or, or he said, I said, what do I got to do to do Race Across America? And he says, well, first you got to do Saints to Sinners and you got to, you know, all, all this prep, prep. It's not something you just do, yeah. of course. And so now it's beginning of December and I, I told my wife, I said, hon, I'm done with Loaded Jaw. Yeah. But I want to sign up for Saints to Sinners. It's 531 <laughs> miles, and it's a relay race, but I'm going to do it solo. Yeah. Great idea. <laughs> and she's like, you, you're, you're nuts. Yeah. So that, believe it or not, is the story of how it all began. And now I'm older, smarter, and older. You know, uh, what a young kid can do without anything. Old man, gotta, I got to go train and lift. I started lifting dis- December 1st, started working out with my buddy at 4.30 in the morning at Olympus that I teach with, who's a hardcore weightlifter. I've been lifting weights uh, all winter, five days a week. Started riding the spin bike and then started training uh, as soon as I could get outside in, in March and had to you know train differently. I'm no longer loaded jaw. You're training to, for a, a sprint. And this thing you're training for endurance. Yeah. The Just to clarify, Lodaja is a ride from Logan to Jackson Hole, and it's 203 miles. So he calls it a sprint. It's not a sprint for the normal human being. It's a freaking marathon. It's a marathon on a bike, yeah. maybe times yeah. two or three. But anyways, it, just yeah, to clarify. It could, yeah, it is. But and, and if I remember doing Lodaja, I, I, I had res- people I respected most. You know, I, my last time I set a PR and I did it nine hours and seven minutes, a personal record for me. And and uh, but then we'd I'd be going home down the canyon. Here'd be these people pedaling up Snake River Canyon with their headlights on, and it's they've been on their bike for 14, 15 yeah. hours. And, and I'm like, man, those guys are my heroes. I could never sit on a bike. For, yeah. I, I want to get done just to get off the bike. And then so here I am. So now I've changed. I've been training for this thing, and uh, it's. It's a total different animal. I mean, I'm, I've had to take a big ego shot because uh, you can't. On Strava, I love setting Strava records. In the world of cycling, it's an app everybody uses, and it's an addiction. And I've, and I'm like, I don't get any PRs anymore <laughs> because that's not what I'm training to do. I just yeah. get log, log rides in. Yeah. So, so I started a PR every day in distance. Dude. Yeah, There's yeah. Nobody training. 
Yeah, it's uh, riding those many miles. So I put a game plan together. It all started in the weight room because you know if you got to sit on a bike for thirty six hours, bend over in an aerial position, your back and your neck and your buys and your try. I mean, it's, uh, it's it's you can't just pedal a bike. Are you? So you won't make it. So lifted hardcore, still lifts on off days. Uh, got outside starting March. Uh, one of my buddies, Sid's a PA and a physician's assistant and a cyclist, and he's he's a hardcore, and everything's just started falling into place. Uh, you know, once I decided to do it, I have a, a teaching assistant at Olympus, a friend of mine, Dana, and I taught all of her kids, and she said, you doing Lodo John next year? And I said, yeah, just for fun, but I want to do this 531-mile bike race from Salt Lake to St. George, but... Las Vegas. I mean, sorry, Las Vegas. I need a van. So I don't know. I don't know how it's going to get. We'll be your support crew. We've got a 12-man van. Yeah. Are you serious? And they're, they're, her, her husband's done loaded job for you. They're junkies. So they're in. So, okay, well, I got what excuse do I have now? I got a van. So went from there. February uh, was time to sign up for the race. And I remember sitting at my computer. And I was signing up. And then at the end, it had a disclaimer. It said, if you want to pay an extra $25... Then if you can't make the race, we'll refund your $200 entrance fee or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, do I hit that button or not? <laughs> and I said, no, I can't. Because if I don't hit that button, I'm not all in. Yeah. And that's what I, I teach uh, my kids all the time. You all in. Yeah. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You're all yeah. in. So I didn't get the insurance. Yeah. So now, and I hit that button, and now I was shaking because I'm like, holy cow, what did I just get myself into? Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. I'm all in. Got training. Things fell in place. And now, uh, you know, I'm ramping up the miles, and I do 200 miles plus a couple times a week, three times a week. I'm up to, uh, I had all these goals I've set that I wanted to accomplish in training, and it's been a huge t uh, time commitment, and I uh, appreciate my family putting up with me doing it. My wife, uh, she's 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 come around. She's I think even a little excited for it. And but then you know I'd want to make it bigger than just Mark Smith. Didn't want it to be a, about me, and so did a lot of thinking and said you know. I've been a teacher for 26 years. What can I what can I do to pay it forward or leave a legacy for other other kids? And that's when I came up with this idea that I wanted to create this scholarship fund where deserving kids could get a scholarship from from uh, the Big Dream Challenge is what I've called it. And then it's not just giving them a scholarship though. Part of the expectation is when they receive that scholarship that all the donors and benefactors and sponsors have donated money to give them, they got to pay it forward. It's not just about helping themselves. It's about you've been helped now. What's your commitment level? What are you going to do to pay it forward when yeah. you're done? So I think that's what makes it cool. a little bit different and unique. I love it. So the pressure's on. So... Got a lot of friends and family and people that, dude, you got this. You, you, no problem. You got it. <laughs> and the money's starting to come in for the, for the challenge. And, and it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, I got all these people counting on me. And, and even my wife, I think, was getting a little nervous because 
one day I had I hadn't left the house yet. I got out of the house late because when I go, I'm literally gone for 10, 12, 14 hours. And she goes, you're going to go ride today, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think she was afraid I wasn't going to train. She's keeping you motivated. <laughs> yeah, because she's like, dude, uh, you got a lot of people counting on you here. Mm. And so it just morphed into, and then it, and so I got SIDS working on the nutrition and the hydration, and uh, then I got my training schedule. And so we're getting close. Uh, the last training goal I got to accomplish, I'm hopefully doing tomorrow. I've been trying five times to get to the top of Mount Baldy, up Mirror Lake Highway there, because there's a climb in the race that's exactly like that one. But it's been the last three, four miles, it's been covered with snow. But yeah. I got the word, it's open. It it's opened clear. Monday. It so cleared it finally. So tomorrow we're going going 200 miles and climbing Mount Baldy. Good for you. And then uh, the last, and then I'm, and I've always believed in, you know, well, this is a history teacher. I mean, FDR said the only thing we had to fear is fear itself. But I also know that uh, preparation is what alleviates all fear. Yeah. And so if you're prepared, you shall not fear. So I'm getting there, Got, a, but uh, I'm still, the biggest issue I'm still not prepared for is the heat because yeah. summer hasn't hit us yet. And, you know, I, as I do my research, those last 100 miles, it's 120 degrees on the road. And guys can't stay stay hydrated and it gets real tough and so I'm looking forward to finally warming up here and I got to uh, but you know I'm on my eating schedule and my training schedule and people go man you must lose a ton of weight riding and I go yeah I'd like to if you think riding 14 hours you ought to lose something but because you're training for the race and you have x amount of carbs and proteins you got to eat every hour on the hour or every 15 minutes and drinks and calories so you know, it's not a good way to lose weight is what I'm saying. Yeah. You're better yeah. off going and riding your spin bike for an hour and yeah. taking a glass of water. Exactly. And so so I'm getting nervous. We've got four weeks left to train. And the big thing left to do is uh, I just got to go ride in the heat and acclimate my body and stay on my drinking schedule and consume my salt and, you know, get to where I believe I can make it in 120-degree heat for 100 yeah. miles and... Tell me this. I'm what there. What is your biggest fear about the race? My biggest fear about the race, um, well, I don't fear. I've done, I've done the night ride. I mean, you, you, ride, you don't stop, right? I leave at 5 a.m. Friday, and I ride. We've scheduled in total of, I think, 70 minutes when I'm not riding the bike, 20-minute dinner break, 20-minute breakfast break, 210 couple 10 minute breaks to change kits or something like that so uh i guess my fear uh and then so you ride all night and you know it's 36 straight hours so i often thought well you know can i can i i'm, I'm no i'm good to go the first 200 you know that's just i call it the prologue to the race then the race starts but i got over my night riding fear i went and did a night ride i got up at 5 a.m and i wasn't on my bike i didn't leave at 5 a.m., but I was up at 5 a.m. and went on an afternoon ride and got home about 2 a.m. in the morning and got over that fear. I've, I've, I'm not going to fall asleep. I hear stories of guys falling asleep, this, that, mm-hmm. and the other. So I've done uh, that big night ride, and then uh, accidentally with a few flats, I've done big night rides. Or when I got lost going 240 miles, <laughs> uh, my wife and daughter said, this, you're, this is nuts. I told my pedal all the way home if I had to, but they picked me up at midnight up in Hennifer. I would have got 270 in if yeah. I had to pedal all the way home. You would have been fine. Yeah. I would, 
but uh so but my biggest fear now because uh i'm not is uh thing, things i can't control like like wind 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 if you're a cyclist you know winds either your best friend or your worst enemy because you know um i got to average x amount of miles per hour to make it in 36 hours and if the wind's in my grill that's going to make it very hard yeah and the heat the heat so i can overcome i can take care i'm going to hopefully try and overcome the heat issues as best i can and then my biggest fear is that i'm a kind of i'm a control freak yeah i want to control everything but the one thing i can't control is the weather and you know that's cycling sometimes it helps you sometimes it doesn't so and then deep down uh, for some people fear is not a good motivator they don't react well to it but you know for me and some people motive like when you're on a team I mean, as a football coach you know it's a team sport your your goal is always to not let the team down it's never about yourself and doing something for other people is a big motivator you know if, if mark smith was writing just for mark smith I don't know. I probably would. I, there's a chance. No, I wouldn't quit, but there's a chance it might take me a real long time to get there. But, uh, but you know, I, I feel like I've got a lot of people counting on me now, and I want to raise a lot of money. I want to give. There's so many deserving kids that don't want to hand out, just need a hand up. And in, with this scholarship I'm going to give, and they're going to pay it forward. They're not, they're going to, have to define what are you going to do to pay it forward when you're done. So I guess my biggest fear is two. On the one is on the bike that I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't finish the race. You know, uh, I've done a lot of sports psychology techniques, and you know, the mind will do, the body will do what the mind says it has to do. There's a constant struggle between the mind and the body. Always, the body doesn't want to work. The body wants to go sit on the couch and watch Netflix, binge watch Netflix, right? <laughs> sure. So your legs are saying, you can't, you know, this is enough. Enough is enough. Call it good. And so, but then the mind, the mind's ultimately in charge. If the mind says no legs, you're going to keep pedaling. They have to, they may not want to, but, mm-hmm. but they have to do it. So my, on the bike, my biggest fear is, uh, not completing the race, and but my even bigger fear, which is weighed on my mind a lot, and which you've been gracious enough to help out with too, is that we won't raise very much money for these scholarships. And uh, you know, if we only if we only raise enough money for me to ride the race, that's my biggest fear. I don't feel good about that at all. That's why I want to, I got to raise as much as we can up and beyond the cost of the race. Because if I can't pay it forward, that's the truth. That's the big, the big failure in my eyes. And that's my, my greatest fear. So we got a month, got to raise about seven grand so I can help those kids out. And I, hopefully we'll get it done. Yeah, we'll get it done. I told you I'd help you out with that. I'm uh, kind of helping out with Mark and going to push some of this uh, 
sponsors and donations and and uh don't worry about that mark we'll we'll get the dough the money will show up that's my least uh uh worrisome fear the money will show up bro we'll get the word out and uh i got enough people in my network that i can go hit up that i'll be uh I'll be at their doorstep raising some dough. and That's the uh, one fear, like I said, when we talked the other day. I don't want you to worry about raising the dough. Just go out and ride your bike. But Yeah, I appreciate that. So that's awesome. Thank don't you. Don't worry about that. And then I just want to, I want my I want kids to see that my creed is real. You know, dream big, work hard, pay the price, then pay it forward. Yeah. And this is a great way for me to show kids that don't listen to other people. For sure. You can do whatever you want. You mentioned your biggest fear is maybe to not finish in the race. C- consider this. Who would you be without the th- that thought riding if you didn't have that worry about uh, not finishing? Who would you be without that thought? Who would I be without that thought? That you're fearful of finishing the race. Probably somebody that doesn't know what they're really getting into. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Who else would you be? Uh, you didn't have that fear in the back of your mind. Who would you be on your bike? I, for, I guess, just another rider. I don't know. I mean, with that, for me, fear, fear is a great. Well, fear of not being prepared for me is a great motivator. Yeah. I mean, my be like I tell people, I win Loda Jaw. I don't win Loda Jaw on September 9th. I've either won or lost Loda Jaw, depending upon how I've prepared. Before you get on your bike. Before I got on my bike and. You know, I'm more confident now than I was February when I was shaking after I hit the control key. And as I keep training and preparing, I think that conf- it's, a, it's that fear of not being prepared which motivates me to get prepared. Yeah. And then I'm at peace. You know, when I get on that bike, I, I mean, when I get on that bike at 5 a.m. on the 26th of July at that start line, you know, I'll know. I'll, I'll, I hopefully will be at peace. Yeah. Because I'll know I've done everything humanly possible that I can do mm. in my old age to prepare myself to to accomplish that goal. I like that. Because I think, too, without the fear that I might not finish the race, if you don't have that thought, you're, you are at peace. Just riding your bike. Just a dude riding your bike. Yeah. Rocking and rolling. No worries. Yeah. No fears. You're, who are you? You're a guy riding your bike without fear. Yeah. Just getting her done. That's the plan. Good for you. What's your definition of success, Mark? My definition of success is pretty simple. I believe, well, failure is, we fail more in life than we succeed. That's a fact. And that's okay. That's what makes us better. And that's what makes those victories so much sweeter. You know, those seven years of prep to win before I finally won Lodoja made it that much better. But it's simple. You haven't, your definition of success is not quitting, or my definition is. I have never failed if I never quit. So if you get down and get back up and keep striving towards your goal, keep, keep working, that's success. Because what you're saying is, I haven't, I haven't lost. I haven't lost yet. So if you don't quit, you haven't lost, you're on the path to success. Cool. I like that. 
Um, one thing I was going to ask you too, uh, how has, what religion were you raised in growing um, up? I was raised a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So your mom and dad went to church? Mm-hmm. Yep. We were your, pro- pro- probably your stereotypical Mormon, yeah, Mormon. Mormon family in cool. Utah. Yeah. And do they still go to church? Uh, yeah. Why, uh, well, my, my father does. My father never, ever uh, left the church. And after the divorce, my mother did. So she now uh, finds her spiritual path in, in different ways. Cool. No, no problems with that. Um, so obviously you believe in God, right? Absolutely. So what are your thoughts about God? What does he look like? Or is it a he? Or is it an energy? What are your thoughts on God? You've been in the a religious faith your whole life. Yeah. Uh, no, for me, um, what does he look like? Well, I don't remember that part. But in my belief system, I do believe in God. I believe in, we often refer to him as our Heavenly Father. I believe that we are all, all children of a divine parent or parents. And uh, he's not, from my perspective, he's not a power, he's not a force, he's not, you know, whatever the mystical thing is that runs the universe, but he is an actual caring, loving, breathing, omniscient, omnipotent, perfect person. And uh, and literally, I believe he is the father of, our, of everyone's spirits. And we lived with him before he came to, came to earth. And we grew and developed and we wanted to have the joy and happiness that he has, and he wants us to have the same thing too. And like you, we were talking earlier about some issues, you know, with my son that were going on, and mm-hmm. you mentioned you got to let them go. Sure. You got to give them their agency. We want to hang on and make their choices for them, but you got to let them go. So um, what happens from there? Uh, yeah, so... We lived with our Heavenly Father before we came here, and then we came into mortality to grow and learn things that we couldn't learn without leaving, leaving, leaving the nest, so, so to speak. And he doesn't leave, leave us here on our own. I mean, he's been with me every step of everything I've ever done in my entire life. And... You know, I often think, man, how hard would it be for me if to think there was no God, that this just happens by accident, that we're just here and we live, we die, and and it that just doesn't make sense for me. And like I said, though, I respect everybody and what they believe. So he is real. And the thing that I was thinking when I'm 
240 mile ride the other night when I got to the top of the Hogsback climb out of Hennifer. And it's a midnight and it's a beautiful night. And there's no wind, which is rare. And I just, and I could looked up and I could see a full moon and those billions of stars up there. And, and I just had to stop for a minute and just think about, man, how awesome it is that I have a heavenly father that is the creator of everything. And yet, he's got all these bazillion planets up there. And he knows me. He knows me personally. He knows all of his children personally. And, you know, a lot of times people talk about the huge, the big miracles in their lives. But my belief in the Heavenly Father has grown more out of what I call the tender mercies, the little things. I mean, man, God doesn't care, you know, care about me. There's 7 billion people on this planet. He's created worlds without number. Can he know me? And then I have things happen in my life almost on a daily basis that are nothing huge, but it reinforces that, you know, even the little things, God is, as my father is, is looking out for me and all of his children. And then you think about, well, what about all the problems in the world and all the death and carnage and crap going on? And, and you know what? That's the other part of, of it, though, too, is God has given us our free agency. We came down here to see what we can do. You know, what are you going to do to make, to make the world a better place? What are you going to do to help your brothers and sisters out? And, uh, you know, are you all in or not? But he'll never take away our agency. We're always free. And sometimes because of that agency, bad things happen. But uh, like my dad, you know, his, his experience, he did nothing wrong. But look what he learned from that. And so challenges come our way, trials come our way. And some, most we don't want or want to have to suffer. But ultimately, everything that happens to us as I look back, as I'm getting older, I can see how God has molded and shaped my life to help me be something a lot better than what Mark Smith would be on his own. What about um, that experience with your mom and dad? You said that was a rough experience for your dad, but uh, was that a bad thing? At that time, that happened? Yeah, or even looking back on it, is it was it bad? Well, I think... Any, I guess what do you, you define bad for me? What do you mean by bad? So I know that was a big deal for you because we talked about your Levi's and your Pac-Man shirt yeah. and the whole nine yards. But that experience when your mom said, hey, I want a divorce, when you look back on it and where you are today and where your dad is today, was that a bad thing? Oh, see, no, absolutely not. That was, that, that was a learning experience that shaped my father's life, my life, my character, made me, that trial we went through, uh, at the moment, and for a lot of years, it was a very hurtful thing. But the experience, I mean, look, I, I look at all the trials and rough things that have happened during my life, and uh, all those things have been for my good and ultimately made me a better person spiritually, and, and in this case, with the cycling too, physically. Yeah. And wasn't your mom just following her heart? 
I don't know. Honestly, I, I, I can't, I can't speak for my mother on that one because uh, all I know is that whatever path she has chosen, I mean, only she knows how she feels, but I do know the path she has chosen has made it so she hasn't, wasn't able to raise her four sons. Yeah. Maybe that was part of the, uh, part of her uh, journey and her experience and learning about who and, you know, I think all these experiences show up on our life to find so we can nail down who we really are and learn how to take care of ourselves. So you wonder the decisions we make, good or bad, ultimately, I think they go back to grinding away at you until you can figure out who you are and what your purpose is on this planet, you know? Absolutely. And I don't believe that when she made that decision, she thought she was maybe going to lose her boys. Oh, no. Over it. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel a reunion for your family one day because I know it's... Uh, uh, I think of my mom and not seeing her for, for you know, 20 or 30 years, and I can't imagine um, that. And I know as a mother, and I watch my mother mother our children, and uh, there's a strong bond there. So I'm sure there's a little bit of pain there, but it takes pain to figure out who we are and what we are and what's important. Sometimes it takes 30 or 40 years of pain to get us to to really get home to ourselves and, you know. and uh, Or longer. Or longer, you know, and drop your, you know, drop our our egos and and and. and Find out, hey, what's you know what's important? You know, if I wasn't going to be here much longer, what what do I want to get done while I'm here today on this planet? So, I don't know. I think there's. No, you're absolutely right. I think there's a possibility there that uh, things could be amazing again for your whole family, and I hope that's the case one day. So, obviously, you believe in God. So, if you believe in God, one of my favorite questions: Does Satan exist, and do you believe in hell? I had a feeling that one was coming. I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> I before. know. So, yeah, you've listened. See, I, I've, I've, I, you're yeah, prepared. I prepared. If you're prepared, you shall not fear. Right? Yeah. No. Um, so yes, uh, I do believe there is a person called Satan or Lucifer, uh, and he exists. Purpose of his existence is to basically everything he can to make our lives miserable because of choices he made before we ever came here. Chose to go at his own and take those that would follow him with him. He never had the opportunity to experience life like we do. So yes, he is he is not a I mean it only it's only makes sense that I mean it, if God if there's a God then there also has to be a Satan. Uh and his purpose, like I said, so some you know bad things happen to us. Well, for one of three reasons. Sometimes the Lord will let it. We make dumb choices, right? Sure. We've got our agency, yeah, so we bring suffering upon ourselves because of yeah. dumb choices. But we learn from them. And there's two ways to learn. I can learn from watching you screw up and then not make the same mistake, or I can do sure. it myself. And then there's bad things happen because of the evil influence of Satan. But I don't. I'm not at the mercy of Satan, and 
that I believe if I stay close to my Heavenly Father and do my best to do what's right, that you know, ultimately good always wins over evil. Uh, but he is real. Evil is real in this world, and so is good. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what would you uh, want your God to say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Yeah, that's a good good question. And, you know, I've thought about that question through all the different phases of my life, my adolescence, early adulthood. Now I'm in my 50s. And, you know, uh, the biggest thing I, I hope for when my journey here in mortality is this phase in my growth is completed and, and I get to go back home and uh, be reunited with my family over there is, uh, you know, I, I just want to, I want to be able to look Heavenly Father in the eye and say, Heavenly Father, I tried my very best to make the most of my life and do those things which you wanted me to do while I was here. And if I can do that and get a big hug from him and have him say, welcome home, you know, to me that's what life's all about because, you know, we have a finite amount of time in this existence and nobody knows it's different for everybody. But the talk about fears, one of my biggest fears is, you know, wasting that, that short time we have to learn and grow and only the way we can learn and grow by coming down to this earth and learning to love my brothers and sisters unconditionally. I'm talking my fellow man and learning to, and not wasting the time we have to develop those skills and to do those things that we were sent here to do. You know, if, if what I believe is true, we were family long before we ever came here. And I'm sure up there, just like we do down here, you know, we made, we made packs with each other. You know, bro, I got your back. When we go, when we go to earth. We're going to, uh, I'll, I'll take care of you, man. We'll help each other out. We're going to get through this. And so that's ultimately what I, my life, and, and that's why I say you, you're never, you've never failed until you quit trying because we're not perfect. That's part of the reason we're here, to learn and grow. Everybody makes mistakes, but ultimately there's a plan in place that those mistakes can be taken care of and we can be forgiven of them. And as long as Mark Smith keeps trying to be the best he can be until the end, you know, my dad always, that's one phrase he always talks about, endure to the end, this this too shall pass, then uh, that's what I would like more than anything is to get a hug from him and then then my grandparents that uh, played a huge part in raising me after the divorce and and all my other buddies up there. So that's what I would hope would happen. Cool. What about, too, uh, I don't know why, but that instance with your mom, 
anything you can do on this planet to rekindle that relationship or is there any interest there to even do so you know that's a i've thought about that many times and sometimes i feel i feel guilty that i really haven't done more to to uh kindle that relationship um in fact uh you know be perfectly honest uh sometimes i forget i even have a baby sister when people ask about my siblings it's the four boys, and then I remember, holy cow, I got a 40-year-old sister. And so, yeah, so I definitely think about that uh, periodically, and, and you know, I've, I've often uh, tried to contact her. Uh, sometimes she responds, sometimes she doesn't, sometimes she, you know, when, when I had diverticulitis, she called me because she, I found out, that's how I found out it's genetic in my family because she had it and had part of her colon removed. So I, uh, but I guess what makes it hard is since it's been, what, uh, 38 years since I've really known her, that in a lot of ways, you know, she's a stranger. Yeah. And then, of course, I have a sister. That I'm not even sure if I'd even recognize her if she walked down the street in front of me. Wow. So I do think about that, and I, I do need to do a better job, I mean, of reaching out to them. And that's definitely one of the things I've written down I'm going to do. And, and like I said, my brother just ran into him in Vegas a few months ago and sent us uh, some pictures of my... Uh, some texts with my biological mother in them, and uh, and it's like, yeah, no, I totally plan on uh, letting them know about Saints to Sinners, and that yeah. I'll be peddling into town. Yeah, that's uh, I don't know. There's there's something in the air here, bro. Yeah, there, there's there's no accidents. You've no, put this thing together. I don't, I don't believe in accidents. <laughs> You're gonna end up there, and uh, one way or another, I don't know. I I can see them at the finish line. Yeah. Gives me chills to talk about it. Actually, I don't know. You never know. It's uh, But one thing, I mean, it took me a, a real, because of the way my mother raised me and the person that I knew, and then it all changed overnight when she wasn't that person, didn't believe that, what she had taught me to believe or what she had instilled into my soul. And, you know, and there was, a, there was a lot of angst there for a long time. But, you know, I also believe in forgiveness and... And who am I to judge? And forgiveness is real. And, you know, I've often thought, and I've talked to my brothers about this, uh, you know, she's oh, she's old now. See, when I think of my mom, I think of a woman in her early 30s because that's kind of, in my mind's eye, the last memories I have. So she's 76 years old. And, and we say, you know, if she showed up on my doorstep and said, I need a place to stay, you know, would I let her in? And I, absolutely. Yeah. The answer is, sure. Come on in. You know, so there's the pain and suffering of all those early years. I mean, you, you remember it, but it, it doesn't hurt anymore. And like you said, uh, the Lord knows, God knows the beginning from the end, and we've all, like you said, we've all these life experiences made me a better person, and, 
made me a more forgiving person too. So, yeah, it's a, so there's, I guess I'm, it is, I think what makes me sad is that I do literally forget almost that I have a, uh, besides my wonderful mother I've got now, I've got a biological mother and a, a and a sister that I, I, I forget mm-hmm. I have one until it's Christmas time and I send a Christmas card, yeah. you know, so definitely can work on that one. Well, they're knocking on your door, bro, and uh, they want you to let them in. <laughs> I can they're feel it. They're always welcome. They're knocking on your door in their mind, hoping they can get get into that tough skull one day. <laughs> so if you could uh, install one piece of advice in uh, maybe a child or a human being, what would your one piece of advice be? My one piece of advice, and it's another Bad, I learned from a bad choice I made. Uh, I te- tell my, my kids this. I tell my students this all the time is don't have any regrets. The worst thing you can do in life is have regrets. You know, for example, when this life ends and I move to the next one, to regret, you know, I, I wasted my time down here on earth. You also talk about a hell in your other episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times a, a hell... Hell isn't eternal damnation burning in fire, but it's living with the living knowing you got to live with the choices you've made forever. But so the reason I say that is because uh, I really, when I look back on my life, I've done a lot of stupid things. Who hasn't? It's all part of the growth and learning process. But I have one regret that I don't that affected me in a way that I don't want other people to have to go through that. So you know I've. I, ever, like I said, ever since I was five years old, I I wanted to be a professional football player. I, might, I, I hate to admit this, but we're having full disclosure today. So I was a Dallas Cowboy fan back in the day. <laughs> had my little Dallas Cowboy football helmet. I'd run around our yard with my football, and my dad had asked me what I was doing, and I, so I was training to be a football player. Yeah. And uh, so then I grew up, and I loved sports, and like I said, they especially after – Oh, I loved them anyway. We were four brothers, and all we did was play, play, play ball since we were born, some sort of ball, basketball, football, baseball. And then, of course, then I even be, gained a deeper love for sports after uh, the divorce because then that became my escape. And, uh, and then when I was Brighton was baseball was huge at Brighton when I was growing up. But then when I moved in, lived with my dad at Olympus, baseball it's it's a big deal now, but it wasn't as much of a big deal back then. But football was, and so I, uh, you know, my goal was first goal was to make the high school football team, and then my next goal was to be the starting quarterback, and then my next goal was to win a state championship and. Which we, we we did. We got to do my junior year. We won the first state championship in Olympus High history, and and then my next goal was to play college football, and and then I ended up getting a full ride scholarship to Utah State, and I mean I loved I loved football. I loved football, and I was blessed with great coaches, and even in college, I had the opportunity to be coached by some of the best coaches in the game. They're still still in the NFL or broadcasting right now. And, but it all came to a head after my, uh, and, I, and I even got to my freshman year at Utah State, I even 
ended up starting a couple games. And we weren't very good, so, you know, and you're resorting to a freshman. <laughs> that, right? hey. So uh, nothing, uh, that wasn't anything special, especially when I see these, what these kids do now coming out of high school. It blows my mind. But I got I to gotta play, and then, you know, and I was living my dream, and then I went on my mission, and I came back and started playing again. And, and then they had a coaching change, and they hired a new offensive coordinator and quarterback coach. And the one that I loved to death that moved on to Stanford and went on to be the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens and won a Super Bowl there, and now he's a uh, broadcaster. But anyways, they had a coaching change in the position, my new position coach. I did not like the band. And you know, I hold no grudges now, but I didn't like the way he coached. I didn't like the way he traded people. And he made it miserable to go to practice every day. I dreaded going to practice every day because of this coach. Because wow. of how he, I mean, I went from being a starting quarterback before my mission to after my mission, he had me believing I couldn't even throw a football. Hmm. And, and so I, this is the regret. And I love football. I love the game. I love the hard work. I love the camaraderie. I love the selflessness, the putting the team first. I just loved everything about the sport. And then I had a big argument with this coach one day in one of our quarterback meetings at fall in the fall. And, and uh, I said, I'm out of here. And I went into the head coach's office, and he said, I said to my head coach, who I really liked, said, look, I can't play for this guy. So either he goes or I go. And he, he said, well, see you, Mark. <laughs> coach isn't going anywhere. Really? <laughs> so I, so I, I quit. Hmm. And then I contemplated for, and I was, now I was married. We had, Christine had a full-ride scho academic scholarship up at Utah State. And we contemplated, that was a, a life-changing decision. I mean, it, it was brutal. This is in like uh, August, or early, yeah, end of August. And, and we contemplated, uh, I'd been offered to walk on it, come down and, you know, walk, walk on at the U. And after a year, they'd give me a scholarship if things worked out, and, which would have been nice. But then at the same time, my wife would have had to quit her schooling to come with me and lose her, her scholarship. And that was one of those, uh, decisions that took months and months of lots of prayer and weighing out options and deciding what to do and ultimately in the short my heart said you know go to the U and play football but in the long term realized it wasn't the wasn't going to be the best thing for my family and and I quit and I couldn't step foot in I couldn't go in that and my grandpa played football at Utah State my uncle played tennis at Utah State I mean we're my daughter went to we're, we're fifth generation Aggies <laughs> Sorry for people down south, but yeah. we're not. Uh, so I couldn't go to a football game for a couple of years. I just couldn't because it, it would rip my heart out. So uh, the lesson I learned there, though, is me quitting football, it didn't affect that coach's life. He still had his job. He still went on with business as usual. Nothing changed for him. Yeah. But when I quit playing football, it sure affected my life. I gave up, you know, something that 
near and dear to my heart. And the lesson I learned was, you can't let other people ruin your life. And I tell people all the time, uh, you know, I don't want to take, my son didn't want to take a particular class because he didn't like the teacher. Well, you need that class for college. So I don't care if you like the teacher or not. She, you, you, she's not going to care if you're not in her class. You're only affecting your life. And so I always tell kids, hey, I don't want to try, I don't want to do this because so-and-so doesn't like me. You know, no, don't make the mistake I made because you're only hurting yourself. I look back now and the regret is that, you know what, I loved football. It was what I enjoyed doing. It was paying for my education, had everything going for me. So what if the, if the guy's a jerk? Yeah. Just stick it out because uh, by quitting, all your, you, I only hurt myself. Yeah. So I tell kids, never have any regrets. Don't yeah. let other people dictate to you what's going to happen in your life. Yeah. And by believing whatever and however that guy was teaching and coaching, you believe that wasn't the way that oh. football players get coached. But... It was happening, right? Right. That's how he was coaching. So either either accept reality or you argue with it and quit. And then and that's what I did. And then it, but then again, you talked about how it makes us who we are. So sure. When no I, accidents. So when I so I quit football, and I I didn't know what to do with myself because I still had three two years three years of school left, or two years of school left, and so um, I took the the golf coaches golf class and was hitting and I, I wasn't never really a serious golfer just hacked it around but took his class and I could hit the ball pretty good and stuff and he says well why don't you come in a why don't you come and work out the golf team and I'm all, serious <laughs> sweet so but he's, so I said I'll, he said I'll, I'll, I'll give you some lessons and I'll let you work out with the team but every fall next fall you got to try out they have a big tournament a five-day tournament and they have a like hundred guys show up to try out for the team and they, don't, they keep the top 12 on the golf team. So I went from throwing footballs, lifting weights, getting my brains bashed in. I got knee surgery, had two shoulder surgeries, dislocated elbow, five concussions. And then all of a sudden now uh, I get out of school and I stop at 7-Eleven, grab a big gulp, head up to the golf course and hit a bucket of balls, grab a cart and play 36 holes. And those kids get the same scholarship. Yeah. I didn't because, I mean, I wasn't, I hadn't even, I hadn't made team. I go, holy cow, this is the life. Yeah. So I threw my heart and soul in the golf, tried out for the team that fall. I, I had to play sudden death with four other kids, had to go extra holes for that last spot on the team, and I ended up beating them. So I made the golf team. You did. So, that, wow. so then I golfed. And then the next year, I tried, uh, had to, you know, I wasn't on scholarship, so I had to try out again. And I did the best I could do, and I ended up, the last day I ended up losing, I finished 13th. I was one stroke out of the 12th spot. Wow. So I was, I was, I was off the golf team. So I was up there hitting balls one day, and now I'm not on the golf team anymore. And these two guys are over on the first tee box, two older guys. They looked old to me. They probably were in their 30s. <laughs> but I was... Yeah. No one was in his 50s. But, and I said, I'm going to go play nine holes before I go home. And I also then I worked at the golf, I worked at the golf course, did maintenance and things like that because I just loved it. I loved being outside. So I walk over and say, hey, can I play with you guys? And they say, sure. 
So I'm standing up there, tee off on the first hole, and they're behind me talking. And one's the athletic trainer at Skyview, and the other is the athletic director at Skyview. And they're like, and this is the end of August, high school football starts in less than a week. And they're sitting there talking, like, man, what are we going to do? We just lost our quarterback coach. He moved. And, but see, I'm focused. I'm not going to be a pro golfer, right? You know, football's the past. I'm, I'm going to figure this golf game out. So this was, this was actually before I had, didn't get cut from the team. I had, I was, had, uh, had that second qualifying tournament. So, and I'm up there ready to tee off, and this voice in my head saying, tell them who you are. You better tell them who you are. I'm like, no, I don't want to mess with that. I'm golfing now. So played the first hole, played the second hole, play, and the voice is still in my head saying, open your mouth and tell them who you are. I'm like, no, I'm a golfer. We got on the third hole. It was a par three, and they're back there talking about, still talking about, what are we going to do, man? Football starts on Monday. And I, I address my ball. I get up there ready to hit the ball. And then I, I stand up, I turn and look to him, and I said, oh, by the way, and you know, p- people knew who I was from before my mission when I, when I played as a freshman. And I said, by the way, I'm Mark Smith, and you know, I played quarterback at Utah State. And the athletic director just looked up at me and said, you're hired. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm not applying for any job here or anything. But he says, and plus, isn't that the head coach's decision? No, nope, I'll tell him. You be there Monday for practice. You're hired. See you then. And I was like, whoa, whatever. What a coincidence. So, yeah, so that's how I got my... So then that same athletic director, uh, he's, he's passed away now. He's, he has a, a good mentor to me. I showed up Monday, and he said, Mark, I'm sorry what I did to you because here's what's going to happen. And back then, see, I went on my mission to Japan, so I was majoring in international business and economics. I was going to use my language and make bank. And he said, Mark, maybe you shouldn't do this coaching thing. I'm like, what? You just forced me to come here. Now you're telling me not to do it? And he said, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to start coaching these young men. You're going to fall in love with them. You're going to go into the counselor up at Utah State, and you're going to change your, your degree to secondary education, and you're going to be poor the rest of your life. <laughs> and I'm all, yeah, whatever, Cliff. That's not happening. So I coached that first season of 1990, went in the next spring to my counselor and said, I got to change my major. I loved history, and so I changed my major to history and secondary ed, and that was how I got into the world of teaching and coaching, was by opening my mouth on that third hole up at Birch Creek Golf Course. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between mind and body. You got any thoughts on that? Ah, oh, geez, mind and body. Oh, so many. I mentioned, alluded to it a little bit ago, but um, when you get in, you know, when you, I mean, the human body just fascinates me. It is the most amazing machine God ever made. And what it can do and, and what the mind can do, I mean, you know, I, I've, it just blows, blows me away. But, but you know, for me now that I'm into cycling, uh, that that mind body connection is is a is a, is a is a big one. And when you do it long enough, and you've ridden long enough, and and you know, you know what your body can do, and 
and you like to think you know what your mind can do, but uh, there's just so many. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it still comes down in my my belief. I mean, obviously, physiology and biology take over, and there's a point where it doesn't matter what you're saying in your head. If the body doesn't have what it needs to keep going, it's done. You can you can be still pedaling in your head, but the body's laying. You're going to be standing there going nowhere. But uh, but the the it's amazing though what the mind can. I, I, I almost want to say trick the body into doing. You know, every 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 time when I go on a ride, especially after a big one, and I haven't had very much time to recover, I start pedaling, and my legs are screaming at me, saying, God, "You know, let's." I don't want to do this. Let's, you're too tired. Let's not do this today. And then my mind and my my legs start having this battle with each other, and and eventually one of them is going to give in. And ultimately, so far, it's always been my my legs that have given in. And a couple hours into the ride, then all of a sudden, being okay. So you're not going to let me quit? No. Okay. Then I guess I might as well get on board and start pedaling. I might join join the club. So, and on you know, every climb, one of the things that's this is a, a dorky thing, but a weird thing. But when I every climb I've ever started on a bike, I've never quit. And there's been so many times, especially now that I'm getting older, and there's all I can make all the excuses in the world not to do a climb. Like when I went on the two, or no, Saturday when I did the, just the 160 miler. And, you know, a big you know how big mountain is. Climb oh, a big yeah. mountain. I know big mountain. You know big mountain. It's a six mile steep climb and it's hard. And I've I wasn't planning on doing it because I didn't want to do it because it's hard on a normal day. And when I'm doing these long rides, because I, I don't stop, I only stop to hit the restroom, and fill my bottles. So I have to pack all my food with me. I got three. I got three three twenty five ounce water bottles on my bike. I got my shirt full. I probably got eight pounds of food in my shirt and tucked up my shorts and everywhere. <laughs> so I probably have about an extra 12, 13 pounds I'm packing when I leave Mountain Green. Man. And I got to East Canyon. I go, man, it's a pretty day. I'm going to ride along the lake up to Big Mountain and then turn and go do my rest of my ride. And then I got to the end of the lake and I started up Big Mountain with all this stuff on me. And I'm like, oh, man. I've started the climb. I've got to finish. I can't. I can't. Because my philosophy is every time you quit, it gets that much easier to quit the next time. And I don't want to have that mindset. And so, yeah, I was stupid. And yeah, it was painful and wasn't fun. But loaded down with all that extra weight, I climbed a big mountain Saturday. Then, then I, okay, I'll turn around. No, then, I, then I went down over to I-80 and up Parley's, and then I came, went to Park City and around and finished my ride that way. But, but the mind, learning to control your like when you talked about, you know, you got to get to where all you're thinking about is riding on that bike, especially in that race and nothing. And, and I got to get there by game day. I got to get there. And, and then, you know, I got to have everything else organized, so that's all I'm doing. But, but the biggest thing that helps me mind-wise, mindfully especially with cycling, is I'm not riding 531 miles. Or like when I'm climbing a, up Wolf Creek Canyon on that 240-miler when I got lost and had no water, and it's eight miles of 8% straight uphill to the top. Uh, I don't look at the big picture. I, I live in the moment. You know, I'm not thinking 
about riding 531 miles. There's 30 legs to the race, and all I'm thinking about is I've got 30 small races to do. I've got, you know, each leg where they have the check-ins is it between 17 and 30 miles. And so, shoot, I can do 17 miles, 30 miles, 17 miles, 30 times. That's no big deal. And so I always, I really, you really got to, you got to stay in the moment. And when I'm climbing, these big, long climbs where you're like, okay, I'm going six miles an hour, and it's 12 miles, and it's going to take me two hours to get to the top. I just live in the moment. I put my head down. I don't even look up. I just, because I know I can keep turning my pedals over. I can always turn my pedals over one more time. Anybody sure. can do that, right? Step at a time. But then as soon as I look up and I can't see the summit, it's just so discouraging. And so, you know, and that's exactly how I approach life, too, if you want to you wanna do something. Like, I look at this big dream campaign I started to, for this race, and I look at the whole thing, and it's just almost overwhelming to me because... I want to raise the money. I want to help the kids. I need to train for the race. I got to put this support crew together. I got all these. And when I look at the big, the, the whole thing, I mean, it makes you just want to sit down and quit. Yeah. So you got to stay in the moment and take one one piece at a time. And and don't one thing I have learned to don't worry about the things you can't control. Mm-hmm. I can't control the wind. Sure. I know that. I just got to find out a way to deal with it when it happens. I can't control the heat but I got to find a way to deal with it when it happens because all that negative and negative energy just makes it worse. Right. Sure. Does the body follow the mind or the mind follow the body? I believe the body follows my mind because my body, uh, it's, uh, it's old. <laughs> it's put, it's got a lot of miles on it, but, uh, uh, well, they, they work together because, uh, you know, your mind can tell your body to do something, but if you haven't trained your body to do it, it's not going to happen. But ultimately, when the going when it going gets tough, uh, I've always found the well. So far, fortunately, you know, I pride myself on my big claim to fame is I've never had a DNF in cycling, which stands for did not finish. Right? Sure. And uh, I've gone. My mind, I, I've. My mind, that desire, that will to keep going has kept my body going for a lot further than I ever anticipated it could go. So, I mean, that's a tough one. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? But, mm. you know, you got to have some, the physical tools. But ultimately, uh, so far in my case, the mind wins. Would you rather have a healthy mind or a healthy body? Both. Can I have both? Is there an no. option C? One. You had to pick one, rather have a healthy mind or a healthy body. Well, I don't want to. This could. I hope this. Does, this. I don't want to jinx myself, but from my experience, I would have to say, if I can't have both, which man, uh, I would definitely have to say a healthy mind. Yeah, and that comes because my mother-in-law is ninety years old greatest women you'll ever meet in your life and just to go get her served everybody sharp as a tack she just turned 90 but she's been suffering from extreme dementia the last three years her body's go 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 she's got a little walker we go take care of her every sunday go to church with her 
eat lunch with her, hang out with her, but her, but her mind's gone, and she doesn't know who you are. She can't even talk, and uh, but you know she's uh, wonderful, still a wonderful woman. But I, mean, I don't know. That's a that's a hard one because uh, you know when your mind's gone, what's what, what what do you really have left? Yeah, exactly. And if your mind's healthy. Uh, in my experience, you know, your body's healthy too, even when it's oh yeah struggling. As long as your mind's clear and you're understanding and accepting what is, yeah. Even if you've got some health issues, if your mind's healthy, you're you're understanding and being in agreement with reality and how you're physically feeling. Yeah. So for I me, agree. I'd rather have a healthy mind. Yep, I agree. And. uh Although right now, though, I, I could use a healthy left foot. Yeah. I've got two herniated discs in my lower back, and one of them's putting pressure on the nerve down my left leg. Yeah. And my left foot is just giving me all kinds of grief. So, so sometimes, yeah. the, that's my question, is is, uh, is your body screaming? Oh, my, my body, yeah, it's been screaming at me for... I mean, when you're 40, you wish you were 30. When you're sure. 50, you wish you were 40. But, but, uh, but you know, my motto is use it or lose it. Yeah, and there's so much truth to that. Uh, you know, I feel I have a lot of aches and pains, and my brothers call me. They tease me. They call me the most fit train wreck they've ever met. Yeah, you know, because I've got bad hips, bad knees, bad back, missing my colon. This goes on and on and on. And I had I had hepatitis when I was in high school. Missed a year of my high school career. Yeah. And uh, so all those things um, yeah, definitely play a factor in, in what happens. But, uh, you know, age is just a number, too. Age is a number. So what do you think your body's saying with all those ailments? Oh, I don't know. If my, my, I guess my body's kind of upset with my progenitors, some of the the genes they've passed on to me. <laughs> when I found out diverticulitis can be genetic and uh you know, but my body but you gotta listen to your body too, because obviously you can overtrain and do those things too. But so that there's a real real tight link between the mind and the body. And the trick is balancing the two because my weakness probably is that my mind won't listen to my body, you know. I'll overtrain, which can right. do you more damage than, uh, or as much damage, if not more than not training enough. So my body, my my body's feeling really good right now. Actually, like, well, and my mind, like, it's a mindset. It's all like you said. Like the first time I did Lota Jai, it was like, can I do this? Is this humanly? Can Mark Smith's body do it? And then after that, I never thought about the next nine times I did loaded, eight times I did loaded job. I never once thought about finishing. Sure. Just about. You've and I'm kind it. of, I'm trying to have to just take that experience now because there's no do-overs really with this thing. Mm. See, I mean, I've never done, say, I, I've never pedaled 531 miles. So, you know, you got that question in your mind going on. Can you, can the, but I know it can be done because there's two other guys that have done it solo since the race started in 2011. So, you know, I, they can do it. If I do the right things, I can do it. But that's, 
There's nothing like experience, and your mind grows. Like when I rode 15 miles, I thought I was going to die. And now, um, when I just last year, when I did Loda Jaw, after I did Loda Jaw, I, I don't even, I feel like I, I don't even get on my bike for a couple of weeks because I'm just, I'm blown. Destroyed. Yeah. Destroyed. And now, nothing's changed but my mind. Mm-hmm. Now I'm training 200 plus miles a week. I've done already, already this year, I've done six Loda Jaws. Yeah. By myself. And no drafting. By myself, you're nuts. Now, <laughs> but no, but I'm, it's the mind is That's a I'm is a powerful tool because oh, it's amazing. Once, I mean, it's like now it's like, God, oh, if I'm only going to go on fifty, I'm not going fifty miles. That's hardly worth putting my kid on now, you know. Yeah. And so, and there's nothing like experience. So, the the mind is, it's all between the ears and. And I, I I watch all the YouTube videos on the, you know the, the world champion who cycles around the world and what they're doing and what are they thinking and the best advice I ever got was and like you've mentioned earlier in just life too is you know you can't focus on the things you can't control but all you, you can do is stay in the moment. Yeah. So when I take off on a ride, I don't think about okay I've got 14 more hours I got to sit on my bike and pedal. Uh, I don't even I don't I don't look at it as my as hours or I just know I'm going to be riding all day. Yeah, we're going riding all day. We'll just live in the moment and just ride, ride, look yeah. at the scenery, look at whatever. You have a couple thoughts too on control. Can you really control anything? Oh, can I? Can you really control anything? Mm-hmm. These are such you want broad questions. Well, I, yeah, of course you can. What can you control? I can control my actions. Now, I can't control when I'm out there on the road. There's a few dicey places where those, there's no shoulder up by, up by a Rockport Reservoir, the scariest part of the ride. I am at the mercy of the cars going by me and the, the semi-trucks. And I uh, can't control that. I can control me. That's all I can really control. That's but do I, you control you? Uh, I think... Yes, to the extent that I've trained my body to do certain things at certain times. So yeah, if I mentally check out, I still might be pedaling, and then wake <laughs> up and then realize I'm five miles down the road. But, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you're after on that question. No, I control. Just a question and just think about and it because you keep bringing the can. word up control. But uh, and this might be for episode two, which I'll probably. Write that down, and we'll hit that up again. We're going to try to get one or, what, two or three episodes from Mark. Maybe his mindset just before the race and again after his race, but he's got this word control in his vocabulary that I'm not so sure he's clear on. But just the question is, is what can you control? I don't even know, Mark, and these are my thoughts, but if you're in charge of your actions, I'm not sure you're doing it. Or, or if you're being done. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, no. Deeper. I, I have now. <laughs> so, uh, you'd be amazed um, if you really sat in it. And uh, notice you, you moved your arms and you touched your nose just now. It's just a happening. And did you do it or did the thought come in and then you just touch your nose? Then you move your arms. Things just happen. And then I wonder if... I'm actually doing it or if I'm just these thoughts are coming in and then I just follow the thoughts 
So the thoughts come in and I follow the thoughts and who's bringing me the thoughts. So whoever's bringing me the thoughts is kind of controlling whether I go left or right or forward or backwards. A little deep. That's deep, bro. A little deep, but that's what I say. <laughs> that's it's, deep. It's nice to know you don't have to control everything because I don't believe you can control anything. I believe you just get up out of bed, you open your eyes, you have a thought, and you follow it. And where do your thoughts come from? I'm not sure because I know when I open my eyes in the morning, I'm thinking. So I just follow my thoughts all day long. And where are those thoughts coming from? I'm not sure, but it's really cool to just sit back and follow my thoughts and see where I go every day. I pretty much don't have a schedule or anything every day. I just get up and I move where I move. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get up. And normally I go to the gym. And then I don't have plans after the gym. So I just watch where I end up all day long. And it's amazing where I end up. So do you control going to the gym? No, I just think I have the thought, get up, go to the gym. It sounds right. So then I just follow the thought to go to the gym. But you do that every day. it's a habit. Yeah. It's a five-day-a-week habit. And some days I don't go. I'll go in the backyard and garden, go do yard work. Just something to think about because it's it's freeing to know that you're not in control. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, it's something you have to sit in. I'll have to. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to. This is a different one, with and that, it's on that it's one. more freeing when you get to the place where that that you're not doing it all. Oh, I know that. So that's a, a fact, just from yeah. our experience we've had yeah. putting this project together. Yeah, just it's just amazing to see just just watch life fall into place when you you know like you think you had to control every single aspect of this race and just notice how people are just falling in your lap at the right place and the right moment, the right time to assist in in your experience with the race. It's just that's true. Something to consider. And then one more thought. Um, uh, when you experience, this is another thought that I want you to um, ponder. Okay. When your mind is at une- unease, your body experiences disease. Oh, absolutely. I've heard of that. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a big believer in that. So you wonder this diverticulitis and some of these physical issues you're having. Totally. Totally stress-induced. Stress-induced. Absolutely. Not it's a crazy, doubt in my huh? Mind. When you think about it. Yeah, I'm on board with that, 100%. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, so true. That's uh, I'm a firm believer of that just because I've experienced that to, like, a level that's, that's ridiculous. Like, man, my mind was so off and my body was melting down, literally oh, falling apart. Absolutely. And uh, as soon as I eased my mind, my body eased up. So that's just another item to consider. No, I, I, I'm with you I, on that one 100%. Yeah, so what I want to do, Mark, is uh, we're going to wrap up for today and we're going to hit this up in two or three weeks, but I asked Mark to write a letter to thank somebody that he really admires and I want him to read that letter. I think he wrote two letters. If you want to read them both, Mark, read them both. But Okay, yeah. Read I'll... it out loud to the person you addressed it to and then I got a little... Uh, Okay. Thing I want you to do after, so. Yeah, I, I thought, man, I wanted to na- narrow it down to one, but these two people um, have played such huge parts in shaping who I am. That's why I asked you, will I get docked on my assignment score if I write 
two and can't narrow it down to one. So I you would, want, should, I read, uh, should I read them both? So yeah, just read one and then read the other, but I would never uh, okay. dock you. No accidents <laughs> here, bro. <laughs> All right. Uh, then the, the first letter I wrote, let's see. We've talked, we've touched on this in our conversation today. But the first letter I wrote was to my father. And just should I read it? Yeah, so read it. Dear Dad, I have had the opportunity given to me to write someone a letter to whom I look up to, admire, and who has influenced my life and shaped me into the person I am today. You are definitely on that list. We have been together as father and son now for 51 years and six months. Where have the years gone? It seems like yesterday when we would go across the street to Olympus High School, it's a football field, and you would catch footballs for me while I practiced my drops and while I would throw to the different spots where the receivers would be in their patterns. Even when your arm got tired of throwing the ball back to me, you would still let me keep throwing and throwing, and you would kick the ball back to me until I would finally say, okay, we can go home now. You have been a role model and example to me in so many ways. You have taught me so many valuable lessons without even having to, do, to say anything, just, be, just by your example. You have overcome unimaginable heartache. None of us will ever forget the day mom told us she wanted a divorce and she wanted you to leave immediately. You respected her wishes and left, and in the course of doing so, you lost everything, your beautiful home and most importantly, your five children. You had to start all over with literally nothing. However, throughout this terrible tragedy, for all of us, at the lowest point in all of our lives, you never, ever blamed God or turned your back on him. That is the greatest lesson I have ever learned from you. Just as in Job's case, after the trial comes the blessing. I came and lived with you and Grandma, and then we moved into our dumpy little apartment in Holiday, the two bachelors, Mark and Steve. Then Shane moved in, then John moved in, then David finally came to live with us. Somehow, as a single parent, you managed to raise four teenage boys. We are all pretty good guys, I would say. All our wives agree with you. However, they also agree that we are lacking in the manners department. But hey, we did the best we could without a motherly influence in our formative years. All of us have served missions and have been sealed to eternal companions. And God and family are the most important things in our lives because of one dad, Excuse me. Because of one dad who never gave up in the face of adversity. And the best part for you, you have now been married to your best friend for 30 years. I know that because I got married seven months after you did, and I will be celebrating my 30th anniversary this summer. Dad, I am so glad that whatever adversity has come to you throughout your life, you have been able to not only endure but you have come out the other side a better man. I have looked at your example throughout my life, and when hard times have hit in my own life, I have looked to your example for inspiration as one who has never quit, never given up, or blamed God. Your struggles and sacrifices have made all your sons better men too. We shall, quote, endure to the end together. Dad, thank you for being such a good example to me and my younger brothers. I love you, Mark. Your number one son. Mm. It's beautiful, bro. Do you want to read the other one? We got time? Yeah, we got time. All right, yeah, let me. We have all day. 
<laughs> you're not writing today, dude. So no, you got to chill out, relax. Today's recovery day. Read some love letters. <laughs> calm your mind. Yeah, that you know, there you, you've nailed it, man. That's, you know, you can tell I'm very uh, uptight person, huh? Yeah, just uh, you know, we're exercising control, the mind. Control here. freak. Control freak. So we're, we're we're exercising your mind right here for a minute. This is how you go about exercising your mind. Okay. Uh, let's see. I thought I had this one. Oh, I got it. Okay. All right. This sec, this other letter, because uh, I did, I asked my wife, I said, when you gave me the homework assignment, um, who I should pick, and she picked the same person, persons as well. But it, it, his official title is Dr. Louis Long. He's got a PhD in education. Uh, and he... Uh, was my high school coach, and later my principal when I got my first job. So we've had a special bond ever since I met him as a sophomore in high school. So I wanted to write him. So here we go. Dear coach, I have had the opportunity given to me to write someone a letter to whom I look up to, admire, and who has influenced my life and shaped me into the person I am today. As I reflect back on our lives, you are most definitely one of those people you are now in your 80s, and I am now in my 50s. I am the age you were when you were mentoring and molding me as a teenage football and basketball player at Olympus High School, also as a missionary in Japan for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and as my principal who hired me at Granite High School and gave me my first teaching and coaching job when I was 25 years old. The life lessons, attributes, and characteristics you instilled in me is why I am the person I am today. I remember as a little scared sophomore football player, when you passed out jerseys, you let everyone pick the jersey number they wanted to wear except for me. When it was my turn, you handed me jersey number 14 and said, here you go, Smith. You better make me proud because that was my number when I played quarterback. You saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself at that time. Over our years together, you instilled in me how important it is to work hard, no excuses, be committed, be prepared, be a team player, be a good person, and the creed, it takes more to become a champion. You're tough, demand, you're tough, demanding and downright scary sometimes, but you taught me how important it is to genuinely love and care for each other, and the best teams are families. I'll never forget one day at practice, I kept making mistakes and you jumped all over me, and I, was, and I am embarrassed to say I even started to tear up at football practice. But the learning moment came when there was a ring at my doorbell and my dad opened the door and it was you. And my dad said you wanted to see me. You came in and gave me a big hug and told me, and told me I was a special player and you loved me. And then you ended up saying something like, okay, no more crying, let's get back to work. We have a championship to win. After that, you could yell and scream all you wanted and I was just fine because I knew you genuinely cared about me as you did all the young men you coached over your lifetime. The best part, though, we did get to win that first football state championship ever at Olympus High School in 1984, and you have been a part of my family and my life ever since. I love you, Coach, and I'm thankful I have had you to be involved in my life for over the last 35-plus years. Even as your health is deteriorating physically and mentally, you are still, still demonstrating the motto, it takes more to become a champion. And champions never give up. Love, Mark, number 14. Cool. Thanks, buddy. 
I'm sure they'd both like to hear that. So grab your first letter. Okay. And this is going to fit. You put a little more information in there than than uh, typically. Yeah, I know. I My wife says I can't, do sh- I can't shut up when yeah. I write, too. Huh. Yeah. So what I want you to do is is where it says, Dear Dad. Okay. As you read this letter, I want to read it back to yourself and start with Dear Mark. And everywhere it says Dad, I want you to put Mark in there or I. Some of the sentences won't fit just right, mm-hmm. but I want you to read it out loud or do it to this yourself now? and do it now. Oh, yeah, this isn't right homework? No. Nope. Oh. Dear Mark. Okay. And, and I want you, a couple of the spots aren't going to fit just right because right. of your language. Right. But just go through it. Dear Mark. And substitute my name for dad. Yep. Just like you wrote a letter to yourself and you're reading it back to yourself. So, dear Mark. Okay. Dear Mark, I have had the opportunity given to me to write someone a letter, to write me a letter, to whom I look up to, admire, and who has influenced my, my life and shaped me into the person I am today. Mark, you are definitely on that list. We have been together as father and son for 51 years and six months. Where have the years gone? It seems like yesterday when I, we would go across the street to the Olympus High School football field and I would catch footballs and I would catch footballs for me while I practice my drops and while I would throw to the different spots where the receivers would be in the patterns. Even when my arm got tired of throwing the ball back to me, I would still, I would still let me keep throwing and throwing and me would kick the ball back to me until I finally <laughs> said, okay, let's go home. <laughs> so, am I doing this wrong? Yeah, no, you're good. I would okay. say a couple spots it doesn't work, but yeah. to the, okay. we'll get to the heart of it. I have been a role model and an example to me in so many ways. I have taught me so many valuable lessons. For you. Use or, you instead of I. Okay. You have. Use you instead of yeah, I? Yeah. Okay. You have. you have been a role model and an example to me in so many ways. You have taught me so many valuable lessons without even having to say anything, just by your, your example. You have overcome unimaginable heartache. None of us will ever forget the day mom told us she wanted a divorce and she wanted you to leave immediately. You respected your wishes and left, and in the course of doing so, you lost everything. Your beautiful home, and most importantly, your young children or my siblings. You had to start all over, literally not with nothing. However, throughout the terrible tragedy for all of us, at the lowest point in all of our lives, you never, ever blamed God you never turned your back on him. That is the greatest lesson I have ever learned from you, just as in Job's case, after the trial comes the blessing. I came and lived with you at Grandma's house, and then we moved to our dumpy little apartment holiday, the two bachelors, Mark and Steve. Then Shane moved in, then John moved in, then David finally came to live with us. Somehow, as a single parent, you managed to raise four teenage boys. We are all pretty good guys, I would say. All our wives agree we are lacking a bit in the manners department, but hey, we did the best we could with a motherly influence in our, without a motherly influence in our formative years. All of us have served missions. I have been sealed to my eternal companion, and God and family are the most important things in my life because of one mark. 
who never gave up in the face of adversity. And the best part for you, you have never been, you have now been married to your best friend for 30 years. I know that because I got married seven months after you did, and this summer will be my 30th anniversary. I am so glad that whatever adversity has come to you throughout your life, you have been able to not only endure, but you have come out the other side a better man. I have looked at your example throughout my life. And when hard times have hit in my own life, I have looked to your example for inspiration as one who has never quit, given up, or blamed God. Your struggles, my struggles and sacrifices have made me and your sons better men too. We shall endure to the end together. Dad, or Mark, thank you for being such a good example to me and my younger brothers. I love you, Mark. Pretty interesting, huh? Pretty cool, yeah. Rest, wait. Because all those things apply to myself. Yeah, totally. That's wild. Uh, uh, You'll find out whenever you're writing or talking, uh, you learn that you're just talking to yourself. Yeah, so true. When you, uh, I could apply every one of those things to my dad, every, to myself. Yeah, that's what we do. We we put the, you know, everything else out on the world or whatever, and sometimes we forget to give ourselves credit and pat ourselves on the back. So, kudos to you, brother. You're a good man, and I'm honored to be in your presence today. And I appreciate you showing up. Well, thank you, and I I I, I appreciate you. All you've done, even though uh, maybe years in the last we see each other, it's uh, genuine, and I'm very thankful to have you in be a part of my life as well. So you're a good man too. Yeah, thanks, brother. So how could our listeners contact you, Mark, today? And also, could you give them the GoFundMe page or however them you'd like to contact them? However, they could contact you so they could uh, donate. Sure. Uh, if you would like to donate to the Dream Big, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the Dream Big competition that I'm doing, uh, one way is simply go to GoFundMe.com, search Mark Smith, Utah, and then my story will pop up. You can read about the race or why I'm doing it, the expenses, what we're going to be doing with the uh, the fundraise money to provide academic scholarships for uh, deserving kids who will pay it forward. And then if you have other questions or uh, want to contact me about a donation, you can simply email me at marksmith, M-A-R-K-S-M-I-T-H, 2067 at gmail.com. And I can communicate with you that way as well. Thanks, brother. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I just want to let you know that uh, you're not as scary as I thought you would be. <laughs> <laughs> you put me at ease, and it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was good. I appreciate going through those things, and especially the reflection, because I think we spend so much time worrying about tomorrow, we forget to remember what we've learned and are grateful for in the past. So thanks for having me here. And I hope to be back before the race, and then I hope we'll have a really interesting one after the race. Yeah, I'll, I definitely have more questions for you, and some of them I want to hit you with probably after the race. 
to make sure we can keep you uh, on the right path. And here again, I like what you said. It's just one pedal at a time, brother. If you can just keep turning over that wheel, you'll be fine. Yep. Stay as present as possible because I know that's... uh, I have the exact same thought when I'm riding. Just, you know, put your head down and pedal. And I try to enjoy the scenery because I'm not racing <laughs> like you are. But Hey, uh, I remember. I forgot about this. When you and I rode, we rode to Bear Lake for Barry's birthday. Yeah. And they left us at the... We got to Woodruff oh, and yeah. they left us. At, so they're long gone and you yeah. and I... Was, so we had to put our heads down, we right? We had to put our heads we down. We had to put our go, heads yeah. down and we had to pedal for 30 miles to Thank catch Thank goodness you were there because you were pulling me the whole way, bro. Oh, uh, that was good We times. had to get on it to catch him. You damn near killed me, by the way. <laughs> I killed me. Yeah, we rode from uh, Salt Lake City to Bear Lake, Idaho. We actually did it a couple times, but Mark uh, ran into us and did it with us one time. I didn't. Really I was no. I was. I just. I was invited. I wasn't ran into you. I was. Yeah. I was, no. You were invited, but you met us part way. I met you at, at, at East Canyon Reservoir because I because I lived yeah. up here. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so yeah. you so guys you, actually rode about thirty miles further than. Yeah. Me. Yeah. So Mark met us in East Canyon, and, and we, we rode, rode to the cabin Bear Lake. in yeah, Bear Lake. It was cra- crazy ride. Anyways, Mark does that two twice a w- two three times a week now, and I have to train all year to do it yeah, once. Isn't that gnarly? So it's a crazy human being we got here that you guys are listening to today. What a treat it was to listen to Mark and his training and some of his life stories. But, yeah, I've got a lot more questions for Mark, but I was want to go easy on him today because I don't want to mess his mind up. I want to make sure he stays focused. <laughs> That's good. I need to stay right. focused for the next month. <laughs> I took it real easy on him. So we'll get into the tough questions after the race. Oh, boy. Really get, his, get his mind going. I'm going to stay in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> we'll You're going to need that. to. <laughs> So anyways, uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the episode of the Mind Gym podcast today. And a final thought, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to listen to, the, to this podcast, to listen to uh, my amazing guest and myself. Please like and leave a comment if you could, please. It means the world to me. And uh, just really hear this. Your natural state of being is peace and love. And if you are experiencing any negative emotions, you are out of your natural state of mind. And if you're out of balance, question your mind and those negative thoughts. Only believing a negative thought can cause you pain and suffering. And no thoughts are true. So sit in that and think about it. How do we question our negative thoughts? And I usually mention this, but that Byron Katie's got a worksheet that uh, I go to often when my mind is out of balance. So, so that's where I go. Um, and as I love to say, we're twins. We're all equals here on this planet. And we're all sharing similar thoughts. I'm in you and you are in me. So no get, no go and save your lovely self. If you have any questions or would like a, a one-on-one life-changing discussion with myself, you can contact me on Instagram at the Minds Gym Podcast or email me at themindsgym at gmail.com. If you have any guests you'd like me to interview, Please send me a referral. Peace and love to you all. Now go exercise that beautiful mind of yours, and I hope you love our new music. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you guys all soon.